Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Joe M., and I'm a sexaholic. Um, Just to get started and just kind of get relaxed, uh, we did something at the fall retreat that I thought we'd repeat um, for the benefit of those who weren't there. So I'll rely on uh, some of the people who were here in the fall um, to help us with that. But even if you don't get it, it, it's just kind of a a neat little mental trick here. Um, Everybody, just put your papers down, clear your minds, and think for a moment about a picture, an American flag. And the American flag has the words, big bold letters, the words freedom written across it. And that American flag, the pole of that American flag, is stuck down through an invitation. And the invitation has an RSVP part to it. And there's one spot where you could put regrets, and there's one spot where you put no regrets, and that, that part is checked. That whole invitation, it's a giant invitation, actually. It's as big as this room. And it's sitting next to a still mountain lake at dawn, really calm, almost like a mirror at the top of this lake. So what was the first thing? American flag. American flag, and it's stuck through an invitation. And what's it say on the invitation? No regrets checks. That is next to what? A still mountain lake. Now, pouring down on this still mountain lake, it looks like snowflakes, but when you look closely, they're charity benefit tickets. Thousands of them pouring down on this still mountain lake. You look up, and these charity benefit tickets are coming out of the empty glass holes of a pair of giant frames that are up in the sky. So there's charity benefit tickets coming out of those empty glasses. And when you squeeze, when you close one of the earpieces from the glasses, it operates a set of accordion bellows and makes the sound of an accordion. So what was in the beginning? Second was an invitation that says... Okay, and that is sitting where? Like the still mountain lake, clear. And what's coming down? And the charity benefit tickets are coming from where? There are glass frames with empty glass holes. And when you close one of the earpieces, accordion bellows. Now standing in the middle of those accordion bellows, you remember the movie Little Mermaid? Remember the Sea King? Little Mermaid's dad, yeah. Um, It's the sea king standing in the middle of those accordion bellows with the pitchfork. You remember the pitchfork? Well, the sea king throws that pitchfork to a very high altitude, right on top of Mount Everest. And where it lands on top of Mount Everest, right next to it is a security cell. And running around this in, in the security cell is a mouse named so let's take it from the accordion bellows. Who's standing in the accordion bellows? Seeking. Seeking. Okay, the seeking. And 
and the sea king throws the pitchfork. Now, high altitude Mount Everest, the next to that is security cell with a mouse name. Now, the mouse name here stands up and opens a kitchen, you know, these new kitchen trash bags that have handles on them. And, and out of this trash bag comes God. And God opens up the security cell to let the mouse out. Okay, so your task now is, when I say go, everybody get a partner. And ideally somebody that you don't know or that you didn't come with. And practice this stack of, of things. And we'll do a little test to see who's got it. And then I'll reveal what the, uh, the secret to this stack is. Any questions? Would there be somebody who would be willing to volunteer to go through all, all of those items on the stack? Yeah, Go ahead and stand up. Okay, what you described was a flag, an American flag with the word freedom across it. That's the way I saw it. It's on a pole which is stuck through an invitation. On the invitation are two words, fear, or regrets and no regrets, with the box flag, and the box flag, no regrets, is checked. Yep. Okay, this is all by a very still mountain lake. Yep. And it looks like it's snowing, but when you check the snowflakes, they're actually charity benefits coming out of a pair of glasses with no lens. There you go. No lenses. And when you close one of the ear gizmos here... Good demonstration. It sounds like an accordion. My memory slips me for the moment. Standing in the accordion is... Standing in the accordion is the sea king. That's the part I missed. I knew the sea king was next. And he has his big three-pronged pitchfork, which he throws... And it hits a very high altitude on Mount Everest. Beside this is a cage. Security cell. Security cell. And in this security cell is a mouse running around named Fear. Yeah. The mouse pulls up a trash bag with the handles, and out of this trash bag appears God, our Heavenly Father, who opens the security cell and lets Fear out, lets Fear go, releases Fear. Now, how about that? Very good. Now, why, why do you suppose we have an entertaining set of objects like that? Besides breaking the ice and just getting everybody to relax and get comfortable with one another. Memory device. Memory device. Why, why, why objects like that? Yeah, it's easier to remember. The color, the images, the exaggeration of those images makes it easier to remember. So I would challenge you to practice this over the next couple of days because when you do, guess what this stack of images is about? Once you get one, we'll kind of walk through it. What was the first image? American flag with the word. What's the first promise? We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Okay, what was the second image? An invitation with the word. And that stands for, read it together. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on The invitation was where? Still Mountain Lake, that image of serenity. We will comprehend, go ahead and read it together. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know the peace. 
coming out of the sky was benefit. charity benefit tickets. Read that one. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Keyword benefit. Uh, that was coming out of the what? Frame. Now, frames with no lenses would be useless glasses. So, read this one. Yeah, that's Mike, you and I are going to work on that one. Right? Uh, okay, the next one, when you close the earpiece, Corey Bellows. Bellows. I don't think you're going to like that one either. <laughs> All right. Read that one. We will lose it. Now, standing in the in the bellows is seeking. Self-seeking. Now he throws the pitchfork where? Our high altitude. altitude. Our whole altitude. Attitude and outlook upon life will change. And then running around the security cell is a mouse named Fear. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will lead to um, The mouse stands up and opens the trash bag with the handles. <laughs> we will intuitively know the handle situation which is fabulous. And the last one, who comes out? God and opens the door for the mouse. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So keep that, keep the images as a... Uh, has something to remember, Janelle. Well, welcome, everybody. We've got a, a wonderful opportunity today and tomorrow um, to get to know not only one another, but one another's experience and, and the wisdom that comes out of that experience. Uh, we've got a couple of people that are introducing them in a moment. Before then, just some logistics. There's water and coffee in the room behind us. Um, Andre, I understand, went to get some um, soda, um, things like that. So very shortly, there will be some soft drinks in there as well. There's one restroom right out here, uh, uh, two restrooms upstairs, a men's and a women's restroom upstairs. And then the, if you're staying in the, in the conference center tonight, there's another restroom over in the other building. When we have breakouts, um, breakouts one and two, no, breakout, two of the groups are going to be here. One, two, and three. Okay. So like the tracks, A. B and C, and then S and O's will be in the other building. And anything else that I need to? Uh, we do have one extra group, a uh, couples group, uh, after the talk on uh, the Harvey and Nancy getting together on marriage. And uh, that group will just meet in the kitchen as well. Okay. And then if you didn't get one, there's an agenda in a little um, envelope up front. It's got an agenda. And then there's also an extra sheet, a, kind of a takeaway sheet. Um, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is after each of the uh, talks, either by Harvey or Nancy or in the breakouts, spend a few minutes you know, with yourself thinking about what's the one thing from that particular segment that really made the most difference for you that is actionable and that you can do something about. So at the end, 
ideally that one-page sheet is going to have a list of things that you're going to be doing more, better, or different as a result of the time we spent here. Uh, There was the great psychologist William James said that um, the great goal of education is action. And so we hope that the great goal of this is action in terms of your own, own program and your own recovery. We have a couple of guests at dinner to introduce themselves, but they're gonna, we're going to get to know them probably better than any of the rest of us, at least uh, um, by, um, by their calling and their grace. They have uh, come here from Nashville um, to share 40, over 40 years of married experience. Uh, they've got four kids, six grandchildren, and uh, 19 years in SA and Essanon. So... Uh, Wanted to turn the floor over. We're going to have Art Harvey and S.A. is staying here. Nancy and the S.A.N.s are going to be going into the other building. Hi, I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Hi. Uh, <clears throat> let's open with a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. sexaholic and my uh, sobriety date is uh, March 8th 1984 so today is my birthday Uh, you know what a gift a birthday gift I've been given able to uh, be invited here in this environment and the beauty of it all and to be able to give it away because um, as we'll be talking tomorrow with the prayer of St. Francis, it's basically by my giving it away that I'm going to receive it. And uh, this is what I get when I give it away. Uh, In Nashville, They've heard me for 19 years now. So, you know, they could care less sometimes by giving it away. Here I'm a novelty. So, <laughs> so you'll listen to me for a while. Yeah. But um, uh, the beauty in Nashville is that I give it away and then I don't have to say a lot of it because I hear it back. And you hear back from others what my sponsor had taught me and what his sponsor had taught him and what his sponsor had taught him and what his sponsor had taught him and what Bill W. shared with that person and which God gave Bill W. So this is all about us passing it on. 
If I start giving you anything that's mine, you're in trouble. As long as I'm telling you what has been given to me, you're hopefully on safe ground. And so you might wonder what I do to do these talks, because I'm going to be talking quite a bit over the next few days. I do this very complex process. In my motel room, I get on my knees, and I do the third step prayer, and I say, God, talk for me. And by the way, that's what I say at a lot of meetings before I speak. I'll say, God, talk for me and let me hear with your hearing. Because left to myself, I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to say it from my disease and I'm going to hear it from my disease. And so this is what you're going to get today What you're going to get is what I need to hear. (laughs) That's what's going to come out. Uh, This will be kind of the flow of the uh, weekend. Uh, I'll first give you my story. Uh, Some of you might have heard it because I only have one to give you. Uh, And so the tapes, if any of you have heard, might be there. The... um, Then we're going to do something from the big book, the AA big book. And I emphasize the AA big book because the SA book tells us, I think in two places if I'm not mistaken, that the SA book assumes that you know the AA book. It is a addition to the AA book. So I'm going to be using the AA book. And by the way, you know, I was teasing with some people today um, about the SA book. I've read it many, many times and it's very important in my life. But I got sober before there was an SA book. And we have to keep going back to the fact that there is no magic in any one thing in recovery. That basically, and what the theme will be this weekend, is that my recovery, and I've been taught, needs to be based on the three legs of a surveyor's uh, pod, whatever you call that gadget, or a three-legged stool. If you think about it, you could take that surveyor's tool. What's that called? Anyone? Um, uh, well, whatever. And it, a tripod. And hey, Dave. And it can fit on a hill. It could fit balanced. You just work those legs. But let one leg be missing or wobbly. The whole thing falls off. Here's a sturdy, sturdy stool, let's say, with the three legs, and one leg isn't working right, it falls over. And so I need to keep remembering that my recovery 
is about all three legs of the stool done simultaneously. And what are those three legs? One, the steps. Two, is God as I understand Him. And three, is the fellowship, which is divided into two sections. Meetings and sponsorship. If I start emphasizing any one over the others, and man, am I good with that, I will get into this big step study issue. Man, I'll study so much that I'll say, well, I don't really need a meeting. I'll just read. Or I'll get in my religious kick. You know, periodically I get into this man, I'm going to be Mr. Religion. And get into God, oh man, he's doing this and he's doing that for me and talking about God wherever I go and dangerous grounds for me. This I could end up talking about God disproportionate to talking about what he helped give us, the steps and utilizing the fellowship. And last but not least is I need to simultaneously be going to meetings and sponsorship. I still require a sponsor who I utilize. Um, By the way, I still attend at least five to six 12-step, most of them essay, meetings a week after 19 years. I believe from every cell in my body that I have an incurable, chronic, fatal disease that will never totally go away. But as long as I'm taking my medicine, I'm going to be okay. And I think about it very much like my high blood pressure. Man, if you take my blood pressure with a sphingomenometer, it's going to be normal. But let me stop taking my blood pressure pill because I've done it many a time. Gradually, that sucker starts going up and up. And before I know it, I'm back in my high blood pressure again. That's who I am. And that's how it goes. Now, how did I get to all these realizations? Well, I'll tell you my story. Because I have one of these stories that... um, There's a a guy in uh, Nashville, and he used to say, you know, if ever I think of something I've done, and I go into such shame that I become suicidal, that I can't bear one more minute to think what I did, I make sure I go to a meeting where Harvey is. Because as soon as I say what I did, He tells me how he did it at least two to three times, and it's even worse than the way I did it. And he said, you know, I leave that meeting feeling great. (laughs) 
So God chose someone in Nashville to have to have this very, very low bottom story. Very low bottom story. And uh, so that pretty much I could say, hey, I identify. Yeah, this is what I did. And by the way, this is, of all things I think we could do, is for each other. And as Jess would say, all we really have to give to each other is love. And the way I give love, hopefully, is when I hear someone say something, hopefully, not all the time, because I'm still a sick guy, but most of the time, before I give them a fix-it message, they call me, I try to tell them how I did or I'm still doing the same stuff they're talking about. Kind of sharing myself and the fact that they're not alone. Um, I believe I was born a sex addict. I don't go for all this stuff that, well, this sex abuse did it and this cruelty in my past did it and this did it. I believe I was born that way. Shoot, I was born an alcoholic. It runs in my family. Sexual addiction runs in my family. My brother died from this disease. How my acting out manifested itself, I believe, was influenced by abuse issues and other issues in my life. But in my case, this is just my story now, I believe I was gasoline waiting for a match. I was born over 63 years ago in a um, small little town called Brooklyn, New York, and um, uh, grew up, um, and if the, I could remember by the time I was in the fifth grade that I was in Sunday school or Hebrew school and I had this teacher, and I would picture him and his wife having sex for a moment. Just all of a sudden, I would see it. And at about age, um, in my sixth grade, my mother must have had something traumatic happen in her life. She decided we should move. To New, Jer- uh, to New Jersey, northern New Jersey, where her family lived. And it just so happened that she did not... Um, by the way, i got to digress. You guys and gals are going to get a story that's going to be a little different for me because my mother died... Uh, she was 89 this year. She died, and some months ago, I was... Um, She's been dead almost eight months. Some months ago, I was bad-mouthing her 
to Nancy's cousin down in Florida. And when I left his house, I had this sinking feeling right here. And I called my AA sponsor, who happens to have 46 years of recovery, and I said, you know, I just kind of bad-mathed my dead mom about something she had did, she had done to me when I was a kid. She had done to me or did to me, whatever, whatever the grammar is. And um, I didn't feel good. And he said, well, I once heard a lecture by this woman who said how much mileage she got out of her childhood. (laughs) And it dawned on me that I'm not going to badmouth my mother. And I find I want to tell you this and want to tell you that. That's not where I am today. So I'm going to see anyway how this all comes up (laughs) with that. And by the way, two days after that realization that I wasn't going to badmouth her, this idea hit me. This I'm now into computers, you know, how we get extreme in what we do, and I'm making motion pictures. I'm the new great director here, making movies, and I decided to make a tribute to my mother and collect all kinds of stuff from the past and do it on video and digital and slides. And I'm all involved with this. And two days later, two days later, we get in the mail the fact that the bank where she was charged us $9 for a service charge, but there was only $5 left in the account. So I went all huffy to the bank, you know, but tried to keep it subdued, subdued a bit and said, you know, what's going on? And he looked and he said, oh, there was $40 interest and something. And I, I said, well, will you check it? She had a CD that was my uh, sister-in-law's. And he said, let me look. And he looked and there was two CDs for $17,000 that were in my name. That energy, whether it's true or not, I love to experience it is when I let go of that crap. <laughs> Manna from heaven fell. And boy, did I need that 17 grand. Okay. But that's a little digression. We got all weekend, so I'm just going to digress a bit. And so we moved, and she moved out of her own anguish to an area that she didn't check out. And it happened to be a Slavic neighborhood. In up north, you have areas that are uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, Slavic people from uh, Poland, especially. And here she moved us, whereas a Jew, I only lived among Jews to a neighborhood where I was about it in the school in an environment that did not particularly like Jewish people. 
just the way the cookie crumbles. And um, it was a real trauma for me, looking back at it, in the fact that I was starting to be roughed up. And the, this tough group of Italian kids uh, befriended me and protected me. But it, within a few weeks, it turned out that I was experiencing what not I thought it was at that time, I was 11 and a half, but sexual abuse from these guys. And even though my story is basically in the beginning especially a heterosexual story, the subtlety of the guys doing the sexual abuse with me, which physically felt good, mixed with apparently all these life-threatening issues that I was dealing with at 11 and a half and being befriended and the mixture of being befriended and sex all mixed together eventually as we go on got totally recreated in my sexual addiction totally and it just amazes me to see the recreation of my 11 and a half year old experience coming out at 35 and 40, etc. Yeah. And so why I say all this is I believe what everyone's telling us about all this stuff, sexual abuse or how things come up, that it's probably all true and that we're not dealing with a right or wrong of which approach is right and which approach is wrong, but that all this has some admixture together, especially in my life. Um, in that time, uh, in junior high school, during all this, I developed um, uh, headaches. Looking back, I realize now the treatment... They gave you, they stuck things up your nose. It was uh, apparently cocaine they were using. So probably by the time I was 13, I was getting cocaine treatment. Uh, developed problems, uh, GI-wise. Uh, I'd carry a little box of paragoric around, little bottle of paragoric. Back then you could get paragoric, which had opiates in it. And looking back, all this stuff was already starting to get some seeds in it. Um, had some uh, sexual play with a male cousin of mine, but at the age of 15 approximately, my uncle, who was a bachelor, decided that every male nephew needed to get laid. It was just the rite of passage. Excuse the language, but that's how it was. And so he sent us 
to a prostitute when I was about 15. And um, my cousin and me, the guy I had been doing some sex with for a year or two, and we went and it became a family event. You know, you talk about abuse and dysfunction and sexual addiction eating its way through a family where this became a normal thing. And I went and looking back at it, I, I apparently had a premature ejaculation even before I even got near hardly inner, being vulgar. But, and my cousin followed me. He was in the bathroom and I went in and look how it's like yesterday I could remember this. I could remember the prostitute, what she looked like, what her body looked like. Okay, how many years? What? Almost 50 years ago. Like it was yesterday. And how I thought I died this, I felt I was a failure as a man. 15. Failure as a sexual man. And so I spent the next many years trying texts from every girl I could get where I became a sexual abuser as close to a rapist forcing myself on girls as you could get. Interesting, one of those girls from New Jersey came through Nashville last year and tracked me down. And she's married and all, and it was kind of felt funny, but uh, my wife and I met her. I first met her and her husband, and then my wife was able to come. And uh, it, it was very, um, uh, it was good closure, in a way, for that period of my life. I've had other closures, too, but it, it felt right. Well, um, I spent that next period just aggressively uh, seeking out women, uh, girls. And at about, um, and then I met my wife. We were in college, and she was 17, and I was 19, and I became sexually abusive to her. By the way, I was at a retreat center. I was one year sober in SA. We were up in um, um, Oregon at a at an international conference. Back then, the international conference was probably the size of this. And um, I got in touch out of nowhere of what I really was with my wife. I raped my wife throughout our marriage. I was a sexually abusive husband. I would have to have sex with my wife twice a day, whether she was sick, whether she wanted it, whether she didn't. We'd be walking out the door to a, uh, a party and she'd look so attractive to me and I had to have sex then and there. 
And this poor gal, who was 17, then 19 when we married, knew nothing else. By the way, I don't remember when I started a masturbate in high schools or junior high or somewhere, uh, but I did know this, that I kept saying when I got 16, I'd stop masturbating. And then when I got to 16, I said, when I get to 18, I'll stop masturbating. And then when I got to age, then when I got to get married, I said I'd stop masturbating. And it never went away. You know, it's interesting in recovery, I heard this expression that really hit me. It went like this. Most men outgrow masturbation. That's simple. Not that masturbation's bad or evil. Most men outgrow it. I wasn't one of those men. So, there I was, abusing my wife sexually and uh, secretly masturbating. Over the years, masturbation turned into, for me, as a pure drug. I'd use it as a stimulus in the morning. I'd use it as a tranquilizer throughout the day and I'd use it as a sleeping medicine at night. Um, Over the years, I I stopped my drinking. I was a heavy drinker, but I was determined to go to medical school, and so I stopped taking amphetamines to study with and and booze and... um, uh, half a day a week that I didn't do my active practice so I could study. Well, once, thank God, I passed the boards. (coughs) There I was with an afternoon off a week. And I said to my wife, hey, let's play tennis. And every Wednesday afternoon or whatever it was, and she said, Harvey, come on. I have... By then, we had four children in about a five-and-a-half-year period. She was busy doing all that, and I realized I had no friends. I was totally isolated without my wife. Just no friends. And so I decided I got an invitation to the Y and said, hey, I'm going to join the downtown Y to become, um, to start getting athletic, more jogging and stuff. And so I joined the Y, started jogging every, in the afternoons, and started drinking, very innocently, while jogging. Well, two things happened. In no time, I started becoming a regular drinker and eventually a full-blown alcoholic. And this other thing happened. At the Y, I discovered 
gay sex. Well, just like my booze that I hadn't done in years, I took to gay sex like a duck takes to water. And then from that, I start getting into male prostitutes and then into female prostitutes. And then I started having to mix them to bring the guy to the gal so I could act out in front of the guy. And then I started needing, if I picked up a guy, to see if he had, these were adult guys, but to see if he had a brother. And I started to have to have sex with two. Interestingly enough, never slowed my masturbation down. I never stopped my abusive sex to my wife, so I kept giving her venereal diseases. Must have had sex with a thousand people. Nothing, nothing would stop it. Didn't matter. One day I got caught having sex at the Y and a couple and so we worked out a deal because I was a real help to them for certain things that they let me resign instead of booting me out and a patient of mine came into my office and said my husband's on the board and I have heard about you and I can't ever come back to see you again And so how did I deal with it? I went and acted out. The powerlessness is unbelievable. People talk about powerlessness. I understand. I once picked up a a hustler and he tried, he, he was crazed, I guess, on drugs and tried Uh, killing me and I ran out of the trailer and I got out of there and a few weeks later I went and picked up another hustler went up to this hotel and all of a sudden while I was in the bed I looked down and I see feet underneath a tablecloth, underneath a table, and I jump out of bed and I lift the tablecloth up and it was a guy who had tried murdering me. Did I hear it? Oh my God. <laughs> you think it stopped me? Did it? Why? I picked up my clothes, ran out the room, and decided I'd better get for a while some steadies. And my thing was finding heterosexual guys and finding out what they needed and then making them my victims. And so I'd get them an apartment and I'd do them. I had apartments for these guys 
buy them clothes, but did not have the money. When I came into recovery, I was so broke that I couldn't send two and a half, almost three of my sons to college. I had no money to send them to school. Did it stop me? No. My life was totally unmanageable. I could tell you stories from now for another two, three hours and just merely say that after getting crabs enough times and getting my wife sick and they thought I had um, uh, gonorrhea of the throat and I had to go to the public health and give all my contacts that was two blocks from my doctor office with all that, I couldn't stop. And one day, and I won't go into my AA story, but one day I got to AA, and I was there a few months, and this guy out of nowhere says, I'm a sexaholic, and I'm starting SA in Nashville. He was an AA. And he... Um, I went out of the room when we after the meeting and I asked him a few questions and he told me some stuff. I said, that's crazy. <laughs> and so I went about my business and about six weeks later, I had jogged downtown and um, was in a porno. And I used to go into pornos in a very special way, not go in, I'd come out backwards. This if I came out backwards, you couldn't see me. Me. <laughs> My AA sponsor once said to me, Harvey, someday maybe your intelligence will catch up to your education. <laughs> Yeah, that has a delayed effect, that statement. It took me a while to figure it out. Well, one day, I met the porno. This, by the way, I had these guys in apartments. I was still masturbating. I was still having abusive sex to my wife. I was still picking up hustlers. Or going to prostitutes if the husbands weren't around. Nothing ever closed what was previously happening. A total Pandora's box. Once I had a fantasy, I would have to act out on that fantasy. And then I would need a bigger fantasy. And then act out on that fantasy but never stopped the stuff I had been doing previously. And one day, I'm at a, in a porno, and if there was something I did not like, it was to kiss men. It wasn't my thing. 
and there was this dirty, grubby young guy, must have been just a drug addict or who knows what, in the booth, and I, he kissed me or something, and it was an awful experience for me. And I walked out of that porno, and I said, I am hopeless. I cannot stop this. I can't bear it one more minute. I'm going to leave my wife. I'm going to leave my profession. I'm going to say the hell to my religion and just go for it. Like I wasn't going for it already. Good thinking. And I had a peace I cannot explain to you. I had this peace of total, looking back at it, total surrender. I just didn't know what it was, you know. Only recently did I realize what had happened. I had total surrender. I couldn't fight it one more minute. It owned me. And I jogged back to where my car was parked in back of the AA clubhouse. And who do I jog into but this guy who had told me he was starting essay. And I don't know how or why I jumped into him and I found coming out of my mouth the words I'm ready I'm ready you know and so he gave me this brochure because we had no books back then he gave me a brochure and he said read it and write little write some things you've done and come to my house Thursday night. And I read the brochure, and it said, no sex with self. I said, this is ridiculous. I'm a physician. Masturbation isn't, what's bad about masturbation? And as I said it, I realized at that moment at that moment everything I had been doing was about masturbation sex with my wife she was merely a tool to get an orgasm other people all masturbatory my preoccupation with masturbation and you know this light came on that man all I had to do was for the next 24 hours not masturbate and that was March 8th 1984 and I have not had to masturbate 
or have abusive sex to my wife or act outside my marriage in 19 years. I don't have to act out today if my ass falls off. (laughs) I don't want to hear a moan or a groan that you're bankrupt and you're this and my wife did that and my kids did this and I have leprosy and my body's falling apart or something. I don't want an excuse for me. I don't have to act out if my ass falls today. Uh, I was telling some people about a year and a half ago, we were in New York, and, um, oh, it was like uh, two weeks after September 11th, and we were in Manhattan, and all of a sudden I look, And I went blind on one eye. I had a retinal detachment. And I went back to Nashville and they operated on it and screwed it up pretty bad. And then they had to remove the retina again. And then I developed a condition called progressive retinal... uh, Make a long story short, I forgot the word already. I've repressed the word. But what it is was every time it healed because they had pulled it off to put it back on, it would scar and rip off again. So every three, four weeks, I was getting operations and laying down on my stomach for a week to two. Good deal of the day, couldn't work, couldn't bring an income. And laying there in pain. And uh, basically, you know, I'm blind on that eye, but For the fourth operation, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was laying there, and they they had just juiced me up some, and they were coming in to to finish it off. And this nice-looking, young, trigger guy walks by, a nurse. And I said to my brain, Harvey, you're high on drugs now. You're under all this. It's okay for you to lust after him and think about it for a moment. It will help you. And my voice then said, Harvey, you cannot act out if your ass falls off. (laughs) And that's the last thing I remember. Now, why did that happen? It's because of the self-brainwashing I have given myself, with God's help and you all, for 19 years. I am brainwashed. But you cannot brainwash me. It's self-brainwash. I need to come to you and tell you my stuff so I could hear it, which I heard from my sponsor over and over again, and then you say it, and then I hear it, and then I need phone calls all day 
that I used to act out every two, three hours. I need phone calls every few hours. So that I could say what I need to hear so I will brainwash me one more time. Until those old voices are either not audible at that time or when they are, the other voices are much louder. The other voices are, God, whatever it is I'm looking for in that person, may I find in you. God, thank you, God, for reminding me I'm still sick today. Uh, God, may they be freed from acting out on their lust today like you have freed me from acting out on my lust. God, thank you, and I do my gratitude list, and I talk to God throughout the day even when I don't believe in him. I talk to him. This he understands. When I think it's all a fairy tale, he understands. And I have this favorite prayer that my AA sponsor taught me. When I get these crazy thoughts, especially about God, you know, that, hey, how can there be a God if this? I call it the, I don't know if I could say this now. Well, I'll say it, but I'll see how it feels. I call it the God of my mother's understanding. Okay. Mom, is that okay? <laughs> God of my mother's understanding, this, this God of why would God let six million Jews be put in the oven? Why would God let all those soldiers be killed and Russians be killed during the Second World War? Why are there people starving? In my, all that shit that is totally my disease coming out. To make me disconnect. And now I'm able to say this precious prayer. Bullshit! God, take this thought away. <laughs> That's the prayer my sponsor taught me. As he said, you know, hey, God's fine. He's your best friend. Talk to him like you talk to your best friend. Well, regretfully, I never had a best friend because I was having sex with all my friends. So I never could develop. You know, my best friend's my wife. Couldn't develop a friendship with her. I was jumping her bones all the time. So how do you develop a friendship with a higher power. You know, how do you trust a higher power when you couldn't trust your family? I mean, how do you do all this? Well, that's the miracle. That's what happens when I do this very simple thing. I don't masturbate today. I don't touch myself today. If my ass falls off. Now, I'm do being pretty nice about all this, but later on we're going to have a talk on clarifying what is sex with self.
you know. But we can't do that until we do my next talk later about how it works. Because you can't tell me other than what's obvious about masturbating to orgasm. You can't tell me what is sex with self. I have to tell me, but I can't lie to me. I can't say standing in a mirror nude looking at myself is for me not sex with self. For the purpose of looking. So when I'm in a shower, I turn the shower off before I get out of the shower. I put a um, towel around me and I get out of the shower and I put my underwear on underneath my towel. I am not nude with myself ever except in the shower. Now, the shower used to be an acting out place. I'd never take a shower without acting out. And baths were unheard of for me to take. And Judson, I, many of you might have heard Judson's tapes. Well, Judson was in Nashville for many, many years before he moved to the West Coast. I learned a lot from Judson. And uh, Judson said, we'd always talk about, he'd take his rubber duckies and stuff and lay in the bath and lay there and all and relax. And um, I'd say to him, how do you do that? And you know, I take baths now. It's wonderful. I put bubbles in it. I just saw. Because I have this thing I tell my brain. There's sometimes I'll be in a shower and I'll all of a sudden get that feeling. I know that feeling. You don't have to wait for the product of that feeling. You know that feeling when it started. And I say, uh-uh-uh. If that feeling doesn't disappear right now, I am putting on my towel and getting out of this shower. And my addict hates when I say that to it. It hates it. And it stops. My addict does not like my threatening it. It hides. Doesn't go, doesn't disappear, it just hides. Till the next time it thinks my resistance is down. Um, I want to backtrack a bit. This guy and I met that Thursday, and it was just, uh, was just he and I. I guess that's the right English, right? He and I. Not him and me, yeah, he and I was. was. And, um, and it was an hour and a half meeting with him talking for about an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> and, um, but one day at a time, it worked, and a few people would come and go and come and go. And, and then one day, six months into my recovery, I get a call from someone saying, that Roy had just, Roy in Nashville, not the Roy in, uh, in uh, Simi Valley, Roy had just relapsed, 
found the old woman he was doing um, obscene phone calls with and cut her heart out. And he was put into jail. And um, I heard about it and my wife walks in the room and I started to weep and said, Nancy, what's going to happen to me now? And do you know that I never had a time when I didn't get a meeting. Because when there were meetings, I went to treatment centers, I went everywhere I could to find people to 12-step because I could not go back the way it was. I couldn't go back there and I had to go to any length and for me any length meant breaking my anonymity in a community that's not like Denver. Nashville is a overgrown town. And I had to be willing to lose my profession, my family, my whatever. But you know what? I was going to lose it anyway if I'm out there. So what the hell? What a gamble. (laughs) Gamble was, hey, maybe it will work. And it did. And for probably six months, the meetings were in my office. And my secretary became central office. And I broke my anonymity to my secretary. My secretary is the one who typed up my story that's in this... Uh, storybook I had to where it was appropriate break my anonymity that was my going to any length this my sponsor always said that people don't lose respect for you in your recovery but they sure lose respect for you in your disease that doesn't mean people haven't had problems in their recovery when it's come out. But the long story of it is it's turned out fine. Those people who treated me like a leper and told me why, because they knew what I was doing, years later came back to ask me to help their family members. Wow. We, what time did we start? You know, about 10.30. Okay. What? No, well, uh, what? I, I'm going to um, pretty much, lunch is at 12? Yeah. Uh, and how it works is for this morning. So what I'm going to do is get off a potential ego trip of telling you more about my story and about recovery and hopefully the recovery will start coming in in other parts. So let's go right into the next section of how it works, okay? I have one sentence from 
the big book that um, I want to draw for you. It's the sentence in how it works that says, we stood at the turning point. Any of you recognize that term? We stood at the turning point. And today, in our next session, will be a turning point in our lives if we want to. Let's show what my sponsor taught me was a turning point. Okay? Here's the point where we start. And then we go in that direction. Okay? Now let's say I turned a millimeter, a fraction of a distance, tiny little bit, just a tiny bit I turned, okay? Here's that one, just turn a little bit, look where that sucker goes. And eventually, it's thousands of miles away. Turning the most minuscule shift you make today will take you to unbelievable places. Okay? Now, hey guys, come on in. If you don't mind, I'm a controller. <laughs> this is a topic. Because you missed it. Okay? Because what you've missed is the core of what's going to happen. That a turning point, if you're going this way, all you've got to do is move one little fraction from how it works. And we stood at the turning point. And you end up in a totally different place by one little movement. Now, one movement, and by the way, this is, sometimes I sit in a meeting and there's someone who's a trigger for me at the meeting. I do this very complicated thing. I turn my chair a fraction of a minute. In that movement of going like that, I have changed the Earth's energy. I stood at a turning point and I moved. And the result is unfathomable. And we get from this the subject that you guys are the second group of people the first time I just did it in New York and rough, rough, rough stuff. And then I wrote an article about it in the essay. And you really are the first people I've spoken to outside of that essay article. <clears throat> about the 
two taboo topics in SA that we never talk about. Steve heard this yesterday, last night. Two topics you won't hear talking about in SA. One is, what is sex with self? I don't know how many meetings we've been to. How many times has that topic come up? What do you mean by sex with self? The other is, what saves sex in marriage? This bit of no sex outside of marriage implies that you could stand on your head and spit wooden nickels during your, in your marriage bed and it's going to be okay. Let me tell you how drunk I could get with lust to my wife. I could get totally obsessed about when I'm getting it now. But we're not going to talk about it. Because in the marriage bit, this uh, evening, we'll talk about some of that. That's sex and marriage. Although, um, I want you to know that it is safe, as we do it in national periodically, to have a breakout meeting from your regular meeting where a group separates into another room to talk about what they're doing in their marriage bed and what gives them comfort and what doesn't. These are safe things to talk about. We just don't do it. One reason is because I can't talk to you but I am a love cripple. So I don't know how to make love in marriage. I know how to have sex in marriage. Well, but we're going to talk about what is sex itself. Now, I'm going to ask you some questions. Does sex itself mean masturbation? Does it include masturbation? Yeah. Okay. Raise your hand. How? No, don't raise your hand. You'll, uh, try to guess what I'm thinking, and you'll try pleasing or looking good or whatever. Um, does ma- masturbation mean touching yourself to orgasm? Yes. Does it mean? Touching yourself to be aroused without orgasm. Yes. Yes. But everyone's saying yes, but I can't tell you how many people touch themselves, not to orgasm, and say this magic word that I want to, excuse me, regurgitate when I hear it. Technical sobriety. What the hell is technical sobriety? What does that mean? It's a, a new invention. Over the past five, eight years, I've been hearing it more and more. Technical sobriety. Let's say you decide to go and walk in your neighborhood stand on a street to see this gal in the window who might not be undressing. 
but you go day after day to look. Is this sex with self? What about going on the internet and deciding that you're going to open a web, a porno website and go a few levels in? I've never been to one, but I work the I really work on the internet, so I know how many levels it must take, I would imagine, to find the specifics of what you want. I, I only recently became aware of how specific people can get with what they want to see through the search engine. Yeah. You turn on porno and you're not touching yourself. Is this sex with self? Well, I'm not going to give you an answer, but I'm going to just start talking a bit about this. And what I'm going to talk about is clearly defining your sobriety. Now, there is an expression that Roy wrote that I feel is divinely inspired. It's called progressive victory over lust. The problem with that term is it gets hidden behind like we were almost talking about that guy using Jesus to hide behind. That term gets, well, I've become aware that I'm using the internet a few times a week. And it's really not good for me, but I, I'm getting more aware that it might not be good for me. And uh, then hours go by, and then you call your friend your sponsor and you say can you believe it I only looked at pornography on the internet twice this week instead of every day man I'm having progressive victory over lust no you're not would I say no you're not I cannot tell someone what their definition needs to be because everyone is going to be different other than masturbation to orgasm what do I mean by that how can I tell you not touching yourself the loss of your sobriety when I touch myself to go to the bathroom I touch myself to wash myself Can I tell you not to go into health clubs, locker rooms? As most of you can handle it fine. I cannot go into a health club male locker room. That is a loss of my sobriety. That is my bottom line sobriety definition. But for you, it might be no problem. Naturally, it's all, it's just once happened to me, matter of fact. The only time it happened, but it happened one time, we were driving to Aspen one summer. And we 
stopped in Vail, and I was about to have an accident in the car. And remember the motel hotel we stopped at, and I went in, running like a madman before I had the accident into the bathroom, and it was locked and out of order, and it said, use the one in the locker room. My motive was not to look at men in the locker room. It was to go to the bathroom. I kept my head down. I sensed where it was, and I went right in and came right out. And that was years ago. And don't go into locker rooms. Okay. I will have a loss of sobriety if I walk into a porno shop the loss of my 19-year sobriety. It's a loss of my sobriety. I lose my sobriety if I have sex with my wife more than once in a day. Not that that's ever going to get close to happen. <laughs> I have an expanded sobriety definition. Now, how do I get to those definitions? I get to it through progressive experiences. What does that mean? It means that I am going to do certain behavior. I was sober about three, four months. There was no one around. We didn't have a book. We didn't know anybody around the country, basically, to talk to. Or I didn't. I think I heard about Roy, and we started talking about then. But I was alone in a health club, alone in the locker room, and I stood under the shower, and I let myself get around without touching myself. And I said, Harvey, this, something's wrong with this. This isn't healthy for you. You can never come back here again if you want to stay, if you want to call yourself safe. I had to make that decision for me. And so what happened? Something very embarrassing. Now, 18 and a half or more years later, I had to very embarrassingly say to Tom and Joe, by the way, if their retreat center doesn't have a private bathroom, I need for you to find me somewhere else to stay. I can't tell you how upsetting it is for me to have to say it to Tom or to Joe. First of all, with my 19 years of recovery, number one, I don't even want to bring up I had any gay issues. I don't want you to know about it. I don't want you to know about anything that, in my opinion, still has shame rather than disease, even though it was part of my disease. I'm not saying homosexuality is a disease. It was part of my addiction. Okay? But that's just the thing I have to say. Those are the things I have to say to Todd. To be transparent 
completely honest about my addiction. And so, over the years, I've had to make some fine-tuning on my own sobriety. For me, because I'm an abusive husband, it was important that I don't abuse my wife sexually. And so I had to use that as part of my definition. But for sex with self, this is more of a problem than meeting the eye because I'm going to give you a shocker of a one. What is it when I'm sitting alone and I am picturing an unbelievable sexual scene in my head having a fantasy and coincidentally getting aroused or not aroused? What do you call a sexual fantasy when you keep going back to it? If it's not sex with self, what do you call it? If you're purposely getting a fantasy to be aroused, you know the outcome. So someone's going to say, well, what are you talking about? You can't stop sexual fantasy. You can't stop sexual fantasies. When those thoughts come up, I call them my two-dimensional photographs. They first show up as a two-dimensional photograph before they become a motion picture. I'm telling you, they really do. You might not know it. There is a turning point where you let it become a motion picture. I sponsored, it's not my sobriety definition, but I sponsored for 18 years a child molester. And he says, my name is such and such. I'm a child molester. You'll hear him on tape sometimes. And his sobriety definition is based on sexual fantasy. He loses his sobriety if he has a fantasy about a child. Now he gets, he uses a different term than I do, he gets fantasy starts. I call them two-dimensional photographs. I know before they happen that I'm going to want to have a sexual fantasy. I could feel something. Like in here, down, around. Something happens. And then that photograph comes in and then the problems begin. And so for me, I have to be very clear with myself that I block the fantasy from coming in by having tools. In Nashville, we do different tools. Some, we use prayer. Okay? Some, we use prayer. The prayers I've mentioned here. Others, use a rubber band. You just 
flip the rubber band as soon as that thought comes. And you'll see a lot of guys in our meetings wearing rubber bands. And they're just flipping. And the thought comes. Okay? Others in our program need sexual castration by hormones. Chemical castration. Man, we're talking about going to any length. We are not talking bullshit. We're talking the real stuff. Going to any length means going to any length. Going to any length. I can't describe it. That's what it means. You get too many sexual fantasies, you will eventually either be totally drunk with, in quotes, a dry drunk and not be able to live with yourself hardly anyway, and within a certain period of time, you will end up relapsing in an actual, in quotes, defined way. Man, masturbation is only the end product of acting out. Masturbation isn't the acting out. Masturbation is what we do as a result of acting out or acting in. You know, I've noticed we're not doing a national at this point. You know, you never know, but I hear a lot about these accountability groups going on all over the country. And I've been thinking about why are we having accountability groups? And it dawned on me that maybe in some groups there just isn't this openness to say what you're really doing and being accountable. And so you need these small accountability groups to really get honest with yourself by people giving you feedback. You know, I hear in some areas it's doing very nicely. But my question comes up is, man, it has valid points. How come it's not also being done at our meetings? And I did a shocker with some of the uh, last night about raising your hand. You know, when you get too explicit and someone raises their hand and then the person shuts up. Man, in Nashville, past many years, what that means is someone raises their hand, the person shuts up for a minute, the person raising their hand leaves the room, and the guy continues. And then the guy comes back when the guy is finished. However, you can't do that in a drunk meeting because people will be coming in from the pornos Right, we've had it happen. Right into the meeting, start pouring out, man, I did this and I did that and you should have seen this and then that happened and this happened and that happened. Going on for 20 minutes. You can't have that. So, uh, so that's where those hands or the chairman has to say to the person, hey man, cool it. You've had it rough today. Uh, let's talk about this in a few days when you're feeling better. So what I say can never be made as a victim. It depends on the environment and on where your group is. 
But in Nashville, for years, we were put down about it, but for years, and naturally they were doing it a lot, you could not speak in a meeting for the first 30 minutes unless you had a month's sobriety. We first went around the room, we asked for your sobriety day, and then those are 30 days or more got to speak the first 30 minutes. So the meeting was based on sobriety as best we could, not on the problem, but on the solution. So how do we get to this? We get to it through what we just discussed in Hallowports. I can't tell you who have never had a problem with a male in your life that you shouldn't go into a health club. It's ridiculous. So I can't define health clubs as a, a form of sexual acting out, but I could define it for me. And until a person gets this self-honesty, it doesn't work well. You get groups that just keep relaxing. And a lot of times it's asked, why does one group develop so much more versus another? Well, it's very simple, I believe. Because if the person who's starting that group in the beginning or involved in that group is not staying sober, the tendency is, is for people to emulate that person. And then you get a fellowship of relapsers. It becomes the thing to do. In my case, the guy relapsed in six months. The guy who brought me in. And I read in the book, SA book at that time when I was getting about a year, and it was in the book and I read uh, Roy's story that he relapsed in about a year. And I said to myself, my God, if the founder relapsed, I mean, I, <clears throat> he had 20 years of recovery after that, but if there was something, if the founder relapsed, and the guy who founded a national relapse, that means I'm going to relapse. I can remember my telling myself this, and I said, Harvey, you can't do that. You've got to do something. Different, anything to prevent that from happening. What do you need to do? And that's when I broke through my dishonesty about my lust in marriage. Because I used to have sex with my wife twice a day before the program, but in my first 11 months, I, set, I had a contract that I'd never have it twice a day, therefore, once a day was okay. For my first 11 months, I was still having sex about once a day. And so at the end of 11 months, I said, I've got to do something. Where else can I stop? I've cleaned everything up. Well, maybe it's in my marriage. And so I asked my wife for a And we'll talk more about that this afternoon. I mean, this evening period. It was during this period 
that turned out, even though I wanted it for just six weeks, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story now, turned out to be only for two years. It was during that period that I found my recovery, that I discovered that I owned, could, I placed my entire masculinity on my sexual prowess. And as distorted as it sounds, my masculinity and my prowess didn't matter if it was with a man or a woman or a dog. As long as I was being sexual, I was a man. And it was during that period that I began feeling like a man. Another paradox in our program. Now I've learned to be very careful about talking about celibacy, not to really push it a lot, because many of the people in the program the men never had sex with their wives, basically. They were having sex with everyone else and themselves, but not their wives. So for some men, celibacy is part of their disease, not their recovery. So again, we've got to be very careful not making victims and being honest with yourself. Now, how do you stay honest with yourself? One way is by not having secrets. So it doesn't matter what the sexual thought I have, how minimal it was, or whatever, I had to share it in its entirety with someone else. Entirely. If you call someone and say, I have to share this, and they say, I can't hear it, Chances are they're not the sponsor for you right now. Or they're a good sponsor, but you need someone else to call to share this with. By the way, when someone calls me to say, I need to share something explicit, and that's how we tell each other. I say to someone, I'm going to share something explicit right now. That gives them a moment to be... Um, ready. And so what I do when someone says that, I say, God, shh, please hear this for me. Let me hear this with your ears. Sometimes I'll get a, a pelvic sensation for a moment. What I do is I move the phone away and I don't listen. And then I move it back, and then whatever. That person gets total release. I've heard the, the part of it. Most of the time, it really happens. It happens for me. It's consistent. And it's because probably I've not been able to deal with it yet, or to, to, to get it in. It's automatic. If I hear about a guy even though he's heterosexual, never had any homosexual stuff, if he talks about that his brother had sex with him when he was younger, I automatically get a pelvic response. And now I know automatically what to do about it. 
By the way, when that pelvic response comes, and I'm not talking full arousal now, I'm talking about a sensation that precedes the arousal. When that comes, I merely... You learn from everyone. This trick I learned from Shirley MacLaine. Okay. <laughs> that I have a chakra system or an energy system, and that chakra, I have a pelvic chakra, and that for better or for worse, everything gets stuck in my pelvis. Tell me I'm a nice guy, it's stuck in my pelvis. <laughs> the food's good, I feel it in my pelvis. It doesn't matter. Everything gets filtered through my blood. So what I do is I say, Harvey, it's merely energy. It's not sin, it's not bad, it's not your wanting to get off on this. And I say, God, move this to my heart and I bring it up into my chest and it passes out or I say move it down my legs into the ground now how did I do this why did this come about well it came about because I couldn't do the 11th step meditation every time I sit to meditate I get aroused and you're talking about a sick man <coughs> I used to act out with people while meditating. I mean, you name it, I've done it, and everything's gotten all screwed up in my brain. So, I'd sit to meditate, and this would happen. And so, I said, that's when I learned. I don't fight it. I let it happen, but I move it down. And then nothing happened. It just goes out. Okay. Now, let's say I meditate and I get aroused and then I say, hmm, I'm going to meditate tomorrow. Get aroused again. Hmm, that's interesting. And then every day meditate and get aroused. <laughs> then my new bottom line sobriety would have to be I can't do TM alone. That's a loss of my surprise. I get calls from all over the world. I'm the uh, the receptacle for everyone's shame. <laughs> so I'll get calls like England, especially. I did this and that, and my sponsor doesn't know. Was, and I don't know, is this a loss of sobriety or this wasn't a loss of sobriety and this and that. And I say the same thing over and over again. I say, for me, that would have been a loss of sobriety. However, I come to that through my own experience and I highly recommend no one ever Retro acts their sobriety. Retro never sets their clock back without first saying, if I do this behavior again, I will lose my sobriety. 
how the hell do we know the difference between progressive victory over lust and a lust of sobriety? I can't tell. But I can't tell this if it's not right for me and it feels like crap and it's not working out and I do it again anyway. Chances are that's not good for me. And so then I have to say I have a special thing if I do it again, that's lost my sobriety. And then I tell people, hey, if I do this, this is a loss of my sobriety again. Now, there's something so obvious that, you know, like, uh, you know, I went to this point all met this prostitute. No, I went to the lap dancing stuff, you know. Some of this lap, but even there, you need to be very clear and really what you need to end up doing is saying to a guy like me or to your sponsor, you know, and this is what I wrote in my in the essay as a solution. Hey Harvey, I did such and such the other day, and it felt like shit. Felt lousy. I don't know if I'm using this word, but it felt lousy. I'm making a man and ask you to use this word. I say, uh, you, you say this, and what I said in the article, hey Harvey, I did such and such, it really seems to be a problem for me. I want you to know, if I do it again, it's a loss of my sobriety. That gives me the chance to say, yeah, that makes sense to me, or hey, you know, Explain it a little more to me. You know, walking into that office next to Lost in Sobriety, explain that to me a little. And then they speak and, you know, you find and they work things out. I don't believe in someone calling me and saying, hey, I changed my sobriety definition. Because <coughs> I wasn't sure or something, they get into all this stuff. Man, you're solving it with your own head. Your honesty tells you this isn't right then make it a new bottom line sobriety for the next time. That's how I do it. There are some things I don't do that with that I haven't had to. There are something I used to do with my wife in our marital bed. And um, uh, it, I did it once and it wasn't, a, it wasn't comfortable and so naturally I did it again and it wasn't comfortable it one more time, and I said, uh, man, I'm not doing this anymore. I haven't. It's been years. If, however, I say that, and then I do it again, then I would have to say to me, Harvey, this is apparently another part of your sobriety you need to deal with. There's a reverse to this. There have been some disagreements, and I just let it out, let you know. I'm one of those people. I've been given the gift of no fantasy, no masturbation, no nothing. I have not been given the gift of not every now and then having a wet dream. I have a wet dream every now and then. Uh, used to happen all the time during my celibacy period, especially. Drive me crazy. 
I'd go, I'd stay up nights not to fall asleep. I'd do anything, you know. I'd sit up, I'd put lights on, I was praying here, I was praying there, I was doing this. And um, I was nuts, and I'd call Roy up about it. And, you know, the book has changed. The original essay book says you lose your sobriety and your slip. And I just get panicky because the first time it happened to me was I was going to be speaking at a conference and it was the night of the conference. And I thought I'd die. Well, over the years, Jester was my sponsor for years and years and years, and I would laugh, and over the years we found that it's almost a sign of recovery. Because none of us had wet dreams until we came into the program. <laughs> we never had the opportunity. In my case, this doctor in, the, in our group got so sick of hearing, so sick of it from him, of whining and upset and watching him do it. He said to me, have you ever thought about going to a doctor? What? Well, I went and my prostate was all body. My body was used to five orgasms a day a lot of days. At least two. And here I went to none, or occasionally, you know, have sex every now and then with my wife. And it's, um, and by the way, over 19 years, it has become more frequent. And it's about every three weeks. So it's still not what my anticipation of sex and marriage is. But we'll talk a bit about that later on, and how I get my end, and how we work it out, and do but so I went and what would happen was I discovered that if I started getting a erotic dream if I went to the physician it turned out that it was foggy and I'd catch it beforehand and now maybe once a year it will happen or, and I find I still obsess this and my people please and I'll catch my mind saying gee, it's been a few weeks and you haven't had sex with your wife, you might end up with a wet dream, you better have sex with your wife or something. And I say to myself, Harvey, there's your disease again. Let it go. It's in God's hands. So everyone, and there's a good example. Someone might say that, Harvey, you've never been sober, that you've had some wet dreams in your your, career. That's not... But how did I know? How did I know that when I had that first wet dream, even though it worries me, that I hadn't lost my sobriety? How I know is that sobriety is progressive and relapse is progressive. And I knew that first of all, not only I hated having them, but second of all, my program never changed. Meaning, I was as involved with my recovery and working it hard at it and surrendering and all. So in my heart, to my own self be true, I knew that this was something that for me was not a loss of my recovery, as it turns out. 
lot of people go through it, and it's bad and bad. However, if I go to bed at night, turn on a sexy movie, and say, man, I wish I'd get one of those wet dreams tonight, <laughs> that's going to be very different for me. Very different for me to be honest with myself. And issues regarding that and dealing with that. So again, I'm giving this to you on every avenue to really have this inner search of what is lust to you and active lust. And are you pursuing lust? Are you trying to control lust? And at what point do you call it sex with self? Since lust is really between you and you. <coughs> and how can you keep fine-tuning it? What's our next? Okay. Has, have any of you thought why if you're working the steps, why you keep relapsing? for those who relapsed. That thought ever hit you? Well, there's a real simple reason. And it's in the big book under the chapter called How It Works. Okay? How It Works. And do you see this? It says, here are the steps we took. Okay? But look what happened. Look at this page. And up there. So guys who are starting here at step one have not been done this. And so their step one isn't working for them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go over this stuff in detail. And when we say detail, we, <clears throat> it's going to be a process of something about, uh, we would understand it if we talked about going to a Bible study class, you would understand what we're going to be doing. But somehow, when we talk about, in the big book, it doesn't get done quite the same way. We tend to read it and not dissect it. Every nuance. You know, where we'll say, let's say, I, I don't want to bring religion in, but we'll, let's do it anyway. But where we'll say, a word will come up, and someone will say, well, you notice that word's used. Why didn't they use that word? Or why is this placed here and not there? Okay? Well, we're going to do this with this. So we're going to start this. It says how it works. And what does it say immediately? It says, it used to say, there are only two places that have been changed in the AA book since it's been written. <clears throat> One is this first sentence. It used to say, never have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. 
And Bill W. is told, you can't say never to a bunch of drunks. There's on purpose they'll try to prove you're wrong. <laughs> so he said, rarely, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Now, what path are they talking about? What is this? Well, he's going to tell us. But it then says, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. I have a saying in Nashville, I tell people all the time, this program is so simple, most people can't get it. It is so simple, it's mind-boggling. Don't act out today. That's it. I make a two-way contract with my higher power every morning. And for years and years, this is how I said it. God, I will not have sex outside my marriage or sex with self today. Please help me not have sex with self or sex outside my marriage today. But I am not promising you tomorrow. That was part of my prayer for years and years. I ain't promising you tomorrow. But today, I'm not going to act out if my ass falls off. <laughs> Those who do not recover people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Okay? Cannot or will not. A lot of analyzers. You know, we're big thinkers, man. We developed a whole world in our head. We can read people's minds. You know, we, a woman smiles at me and I immediately think she's saying, Hi, Harvey, nice to meet you. Come, let's have sex together. <laughs> My brain's so developed, I get auditory hallucinations. I hear people say things when their mouth isn't even moving. <laughs> Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Okay. We've just hit the word that's going to come up more times in five paragraphs than any other word, basically. <coughs> honest. And then honest with themselves. This is what this weekend is going to be about. Honest, honest with yourself. It doesn't matter what you say to me. 
If you're not honest with yourself, how can you be honest with me? Bessie, you're not purposely lying to me. You've just, I've just lied to myself so much that I tell you what I think is the truth. And so when someone says that you're being dishonest, you say, man, I'm telling you the truth. So when someone says, you know, have you masturbated? No, I haven't masturbated. I've just touched myself every morning for 20 minutes having a fantasy, but I haven't masturbated because masturbation to this person means an orgasm, touching themselves. So they haven't lied to me. They've just lied to themselves. Being honest with yourself. Those are the only people he tells us who can't get this program. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. Now, most of us aren't that way. He's referring to sociopaths. People who, some people are just born with a defect that they really can't compute it. But you know, I look like a sociopath, but once I sobered up, I was able to learn. You all taught me how to be more honest with myself. So because someone's lying to themselves does not mean they're constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. It just means they're lying to themselves and that they're having trouble being teachable. Now some of us are sociopaths and maybe we'll never get it. But then again, how can that be true since... God could do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So at some point, it all works out if we are willing to become honest with ourselves. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Doesn't say honesty. By the way, it says it again. Let's keep track. How many times so far has it said it? Those people who can't work kind of being honest, so that's one time. They are not at fault. They seem to be on that day. Your emotion capable of being demands rigorous honesty. So twice now. So rigorous honesty. So honesty isn't even enough. We're now talking about rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. But man, listen to this. There are those too, but no, there are those too who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. So what's he saying? He's saying... We can be insane, but still recover. 
And so my disease is my insanity. And as I learn more about my insanity and become honest with myself than with someone else, wow, even though I'm nuts, I could be become sober. Make this path. Let me tell you, I am convinced I'm insane. I don't only get auditory hallucinations when people smile or when people say, Harvey, you're a nice guy. That's a good one. You say, Harvey, you're a nice guy. For years I heard you say, Harvey, you're a nice guy. Let's go in the bathroom and have sex. I would misunderstand what people were saying to me. If my wife would say, Harvey, God, you're a good guy, I was sure she was saying, I want sex this minute. But I also get visual hallucinations. I will be at a meeting and look across the room and all of a sudden see a man or a woman naked in a sexual position. It's a visual hallucination. It's not a fantasy. It comes up immediate. So what have I had to learn to do? The minute I notice someone, notice them. You could see people, but it's when you notice them. It's a different. The minute I notice someone, I say, God, whatever it is I'm looking for in that person, may I find in you. And lo and behold, it blocks this stuff. This guy I sponsor, he's in Africa now. Um, I'm going to not tell the story because I said he was in Africa and then I'd be sharing about a particular person and it might not be anonymous enough, so I'm going to erase his story. But basically, what came out of this story is that I cannot judge what is a lust visual hit for me or not. I cannot look at someone and say, ah, are they a trigger? Mm, they might be a trigger. I better make this prayer. It doesn't work for me. The minute I notice anybody, if someone opens a door and I look in that direction, that means I've noticed that person. I say that prayer automatically. I do not say prayers over lust objects. I say prayers over every object, including dogs and cats and you name it. Anything my eye turns to, I don't take the time to differentiate <clears throat> what it is. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. And by the way, I strongly recommend you listen to this when you share at meetings. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you're not careful, a meeting will become a drunk dump meeting. 
drunk dump. It will be only problem, not solution. And if you want a fellowship not to grow, stay in the problem. So I need to tell you, hey, I, um, I was getting an operation and right beforehand, this attractive guy, I, I had a, a lust hit. But this is what happened. Somehow there was a progression. Now, let's say it turns out that I didn't do that and worked on it. You still could do it and say, hey, I had a lust hit. I took a look. And you know what? I feel worse today. That's telling what it was like and how it is now. Okay? So you don't have to lie and pretty up a story and be Mr. S.A. You just have to say how it was and what it's like now. Yeah, I looked and I feel like hell right now. Yeah, I looked and now I feel suicidal. And now I looked and I want to take another look. But what we tend to do is just go into this ramble of the drunk without how it is now. Okay? What happened and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have, Shoot, no one wanted what I had those first year or two. Man, no one I had, I'd scream at people, I'd yell, I'd get into arguments at meetings, I was controlling, uh, nothing I'm not now, as I, you've noticed, hey, let's start the meeting, it's 10 o'clock, it's this, it's that. Okay. But I'm better than I used to be, but not as well as I'm going to get. but it was terrible no one wanted what we had but eventually we started getting something people wanted you know what people wanted and I was talking with some people before the meeting and we were talking about how do you get a community sobriety up And my response was, you don't. You get your sobriety up. You don't worry one bit about someone else's sobriety. That's their journey. You worry about your sobriety and going to any length. And lo and behold, you get sober from deep within And people say, hey, I want some of that. And they come back and they start duplicating. The reverse is, you will duplicate the problem or you will duplicate the solution in any particular community. (laughs) 
If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it. Okay. How willing are you to go to any length? For me, it meant those first two years going to three meetings a day. That's how sick I was. I had to go to two AA meetings and one SA a week because that's all we had and do a lot of 12-step meetings. Stuff. That's what it took. What does that mean in English? It means I had to say the hell with my family. SA cannot be part of my life. It cannot be part of my life. SA has to be my life. And everything has to work around it. Because if I put my wife, my kids, my profession, my religion before my recovery, guess what? I lose my wife, my kids, my religious affiliation, I mean connection, my contact, and my profession. I'll get into trouble. So I have to be willing to go to any length. I was exhausted. I'm working hard. Man, last Saturday or two Saturdays ago, I forgot. My wife and I kind of, we have a word called schlep. We, we travel down to Huntsville, two hours each way, to talk to a small group. <laughs> I have to go to any length. I'm not here for you all. I wish you get something out of this. I'm not here to lecture, to teach, you know. I'm here because I need to say all this stuff. So I'll stay sober and be comfortable. You know? And so I take these opportunities to do this. any length to get it then you are ready see it says then it doesn't say you could start the first step tomorrow or today it says you have to be willing to get honest and then you have to be willing to want what we have and then you have to be willing to go to any length then it says then you are ready to take certain steps who are we kidding you come in out of a porno and you come to a meeting and you'll say oh man I just relapsed or I masturbated today and someone will say to you well you better work the steps you're not working the steps you say okay I am powerless what does it mean? <laughs> Until you get honest, you want what that person has. Well, if that person just relapsed three weeks ago themselves, you're not going to want what they have. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe that's honesty. You want it. Okay? 
See the domino effect here? I'm going to say something that people don't agree with. But I'm going to say it right now. I'm a sick drunk. And I have to really go by what AA says. And my hand is out to anyone, basically any time. But you know what? I only stick with the winners. This isn't a self-esteem issue. This is an issue of I cannot hang around people who are relapsing. It's know what my disease does. It says, man, they look fine. They look fine. They haven't lost their family yet. They haven't done this or that yet. Gee, maybe I could do it. I can't socialize with people. This is not a, um, uh, you know... uh, like I'm better than. No, it's just the opposite. I am too sick. I have to tell people to stop calling me. I have to say to them, I'm not well enough to deal with this. I can't, that my self-honesty is that for one moment, I cannot think the way you guys sometimes will think of me. Man, he got it. He's been around 19 years. He really knows it. Man, you want a kiss of death for me is to believe a myth that I'm cured? Man, I'm just a day away, a drink away from a drunk. But gosh, I'm comfortable. Because I know it. And therefore, I kind of petition myself to be sure to take care of me, to go to any length. And let me tell you, there are guys and gals I have met, and I truly love them, man, but I can't tell you how meaningful they are to me. Like that guy... Who, who, mur- who started the fellowship and murdered him. And I'll tell you the wind-up of that story. You know, he's in jail for life. But uh, my, the police came to my AA sponsor who said to them, oh, I don't know anything about him, but Harvey will this. He's in Sexaholics Anonymous with him. <laughs> and by the way, that's his sponsor I continued to keep till the day he died because everything was out of love with him. And he was just a natural. And yeah, he had no qualms about saying it. And Cherry told me what happened. I said, oh, Cherry, I can't believe it. There's a detective called me. And I had to meet him at my doctor's office, you know. And... Uh, shows you what happens. Turns out he was a detective. The only time in my career that I ever helped someone them solve a criminal case, he was the detective I worked with. And he came in and he was just fine. 
who talked, well, I'd visit this guy at jail. And then he went to the penitentiary. And what happened was he decided Sexaholics Anonymous was worthless. And that the only answer was not only for him to find Jesus Christ as his personal savior, but that the answer was that he needed to get Harvey Asher to find Jesus Christ as his personal savior. (laughs) So for the next six months, I would get not only letters, tones that were against SA, but about he'd send me books and about how I needed to convert and all this if I really wanted help. And my sponsor was Catholic. And I called my sponsor and I said, you know, I'm getting these letters and letters and I keep writing them back telling him he's okay and I'm so glad he was there for me and helped me and just avoided the tension areas. And uh, my sponsor said, no, you can't write them back. I said, what do you mean I can't write him back? If it weren't for Roy, I'd be dead. I owe him this. And my sponsor said, no, Harvey, you got this all screwed up. He didn't save you. God using him as a vessel saved you. I can't sober you up. I am merely a vessel to see what God wants me to say to you today and tomorrow. But I've got news for you. Not only does God channel it through me, I hope, if I'm in a decent place that day and sober he's not only directing what I say he's directing what you hear and people will say to me I remember what you said that day and man I wouldn't have said something like that for all the tea in China I have pigeons who you know quote what I say totally made up But it helped them. God had them hear through my words that were different than the words they heard. I was merely a channel for them to hear what they needed to hear. Because, and Joe's exercise was just magnificent, just really beautiful. meant a lot to me. And it was a good example. When he uses... The sea king. He uses the word sea king. I bet we will have 30 different visual pictures of what the sea king looked like. I bet when he said fear, the mask called fear, we will have 30 different views of what fear is. We are going to hear through his words what we're supposed to hear that day, especially if we do the third step that day and give that day to God. 
that every single thing that happens that day is just the way it's supposed to be, even if it's shit. I was supposed to get blind that day. I gave the, the third step. Everything that happened that day. Why the hell should I have to get blind? I mean, what kind of screw-up did God make that day? Didn't he know better? Well, I'll tell you what I got from getting blind on one eye. I have been able to see things that I never saw in my life, my adult life. I was able to see the love my wife has for me that I have never been able to experience before. The way she took care of me for months, chauffeured me, did for me, put drops in my eyes six days, six times a day, drop whatever she was doing to be where I was to, to put drops in my eyes. So who the hell am I to know once I give the day what's best for me? So we're going to hear what we need to hear that day. At some of these we fought. <laughs> You're going to say that. Creep Asher, what does he know about this? First of all, he's Jewish and he's talking to a bunch of Christians about all this stuff. What does he know? And what does he know about this? He had this gay stuff and he didn't do this stuff or that stuff. What does he know? At some of these we bought. Oh man, he's a doctor, he makes some money. He doesn't know what it's like not having money. And he's a, you know, I laugh by this way about, in my AA talk, about this myth. I, I laugh because um, there were these myths in AA and in the society. First myth is that if you're Jewish, you can't be an alcoholic. First myth. <laughs> Alcoholics aren't Jews. Okay? And my AA sponsor was a circuit speaker, and he would point to me in the audience. You know, we'd have hundreds of people who'd say, see, see this guy? He just comes around to these meetings, but he's not an alcoholic. He's a Jew. <laughs> a Jew. <laughs> and the other myth was that all Jews are rich. They forgot to tell my parents. They skipped that one. And I have just a lot of fun with that. But what ultimately happens is, yeah, this <clears throat> disease is the all equalizer. For the past year, I have spent an enormous amount of time working with these Orthodox, Orthodox Jews in recovery from the Northeast, you know, with the earlocks and the black coats and the beards and all. And do you know what? Why I was prepared to work with them and help them, I hope. Because for the previous 17 years before that, I was working with fundamentalist ministers in our program. 
we have the most disproportionate amount of clergy I think of any fellowship. We are some of the most religious, spiritual people, I believe, in any 12-step programs. Tremendous disproportion. And do you know what? I learned from them how to cut through this other religious stuff. And how did I learn? Through trial and error. I learned that, first of all, uh, uh, I, I sponsor a priest for 16, 17, or a lot of years, forgot the amount of years, maybe uh, 10, 11 bits. I still exaggerate, by the way. You talk about lying. My line comes out in exaggeration. I have to keep catching myself. Whenever you ask me a question, like a direction, a car will stop me in the street and say, you know, where's this and that? I tell them, and then I realize I don't even know. And then I'll say, no, no, maybe that's no, it might be there. Then I realize I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's the continuation of the line. But but what happened was about, I think it was about 15, 16 years ago, we had this guy come into the program. He was a real uh, good guy, real Christian guy. And um, he kept saying that he can't, do it in the program business steps didn't use Jesus in the steps and he just couldn't come well he kept relapsing well what eventually happened is we said to him hey you need to go to a treatment center and we gave him some recommendations and naturally he didn't go to the places he wanted we wanted him to go he went to a Christian treatment center, which was the greatest gift for Nashville you could imagine, because at this Christian treatment center, they confronted him and they said, your disease is hiding behind Jesus. You are using it to perpetuate your disease. You are not connecting. You're not getting a personal connection. You are using to hide your disease. Well, things like that, and I'll tell more stories in, in the, uh, when we talk about Prayer of St. Francis, but um, he, he taught me this. So then, many years ago, about four or five years ago, some Orthodox with the you know coat and the beard and all shows up in Nashville at a meeting, and he says, "I can't come to these meetings because they meet in a church." And I said, "Oh my God, it's the same disease." <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing and the guy was a strict Sabbath observer so he couldn't call us on Saturday use a telephone but he was able to walk downtown to pick up a prostitute <laughs> (laughs) 
to church services or flirted with some gal during church service. Because this disease is an equalizer. I would go to this special, many of you might not be aware of it, but we have a baptismal bath that um, certain traditional people use, and you go in, and it's uh, the same principle baptism, but uh, with different meanings to it. And you go in right before, especially the Day of Atonement, when you fast all for 24 hours. And I would go in and feel this, purity and this cleansing, I get dressed, get in my car and say, man, I have two hours before Yom Kippur starts, I could get down to the pornos. I go to the pornos. You know, this is an equalizer. We've all done it and this is why it works. When I have a Catholic sponsor and a, a priest as a Jewish sponsor, and we find out we're all doing the same thing and thinking the same way, we get to see this is truly a disease. Okay. But um, some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. <laughs> like, I won't masturbate, but I will still read those pornos, magazines. But we could not. <clears throat> All the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Not tomorrow. Today. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas. Oh, did my sponsor beat me up about that. He would say, Harvey, that's not religion you're talking about. That superstition. <laughs> He'd tell me I had to let go of my old ideas. My old ideas were that I was taught that if I get on my knees, that's reminiscent of worshiping idols and there's no greater sin. So when I was told in AA and SA I needed to hit my knees to pray, I said, no way, kid. But do you know what I had to do? I had to hit my knees. Now, after the first bolt of lightning, nothing else happened. <laughs> But know what happened once I start doing it? I start seeing in our prayer books and during certain services that it says and we bow our knees and then during certain holidays you get on your hands and knees and prostrate yourself 
until I let go of the old ideas that were handed to me from my mother or grandmother or whoever of the God of their understanding and let go and if you could see in general terms how can we have a personal relationship with our higher powers we understand them if we're still holding on to old ideas tough you want a personal relationship it has to be your relationship so this guy one of there's a guy who now I talk to quite a bit who is very orthodox and he said hey I use the phone on Saturday I'm sick I need to use the phone and he does he had to let go of his old ideas didn't make him become a Buddhist <laughs> some of us have to have tried to hold on to our ideas old ideas and the result was nil nothing nil means nothing until we let go absolutely an old idea I could not masturbate but I could still lust it gives you book gifts as we say nothing <laughs> zero zilch what are some other ways of saying nothing there must be some <laughs> not a remember that we deal with sexaholism cunning baffling powerful without help it is too much for us but there is one who has all power that one is god may you find him now and here it is half measures availed us nothing it does not say half measures availed us a half if you stop masturbating and you continue not to use your program for lust you will not get half you will get nothing i guarantee it i have a lot of now i say i used to have maybe a thousand sex partners now i've seen probably over a thousand people come and go in recovery i used to keep track of it on a piece of paper i have a lot of experience seeing what i don't want to do we asked his protection and care with complete abandonment that one sentence from the big book that um i want to draw for you it's the sentence in how it works that says 
We stood at the turning point. Any of you recognize that term? We stood at the turning point. <clears throat> and today, and our next session, will be a turning point in our lives if we want to. So let's show what my sponsor taught me was a turning point. Okay, here's the point where we start, and then we go in that direction, okay? Now let's say I turn a millimeter, a fraction of a distance, tiny little bit, just a tiny bit I turn, okay? Here's that one. Just turn a little bit. Look where that sucker goes. And eventually, it's thousands of miles away. Turning The most minuscule shift you make today will take you to unbelievable places. Now, hey guys, come on in. If you don't mind, I'm a controller. <laughs> this is a topic. Because you missed it, okay? Because what you've missed is the core of what's going to happen. That a turning point, if you're going this way, all you've got to do is move one little fraction from how it works. And we've stood at the turning point. And you end up in a totally different place by one little movement. Now, one movement, and by the way, this is, sometimes I sit in a meeting and there's someone who's a trigger for me at the meeting. I do this very complicated thing. I turn my chair a fraction of an inch. In that movement of going like that, I have change the Earth's energy. I stood at a turning point and I moved. And the result is unfathomable. And we get from this the subject that you guys are the second group of people the first time I just did it in New York and rough, rough, rough stuff. And then I wrote an article about it in the essay. And you really are the first people I've spoken to outside of that essay article. <clears throat> about the two taboo topics in essay that we never talk about. Steve heard this yesterday, last night. Um, 
We've had change of plans. We were going to talk on the sixth and seventh step, and then someone in the room just out here asked me about, do I check in with someone every day with accountability, and do I have an accountability partner every day? And I said, what? And they said, accountability. I said, oh, you mean sponsorship? Do I call my sponsor and what? And they said, what do you mean sponsor? And we talked for a while, a group of us, and I realized that maybe this session we need to talk about sponsorship. Okay? Because whatever you have heard me say today were the voices of my sponsors. Over the years, I've stopped quoting him quoting him quite as much, but even so, you heard me say Cherry, and you've heard me say uh, Jess. What do I mean by sponsorship? Now, by the way, there is a pamphlet at the AA Clubhouse called Sponsorship. There is no way I would be here without Sponsorship. I am not allowed to think for myself. I am not qualified to think. Cherry, at the time, had 25 years, and I remember him saying this. We were at a meeting, and we, I was saying something, or someone was saying something, and I was saying, um, gee, I was thinking about such and such. And he said, well, that's your first problem. You're thinking again. <laughs> and he said, see that guy there? Well, I knew. I've sponsored him for 18 years, and I still haven't given him permission to think yet. <laughs> and that guy... 20 years I've sponsored him, and he still hasn't gotten permission to think yet. And I can't tell you how many times I would call him, and he would say, you're thinking again. And other people in the fellowship say, when you think, you're behind enemy lines. <laughs> My best thinking my very best thinking got me in what I got into. My brother was a rabbi in St. Louis, and he had this disease, and he picked up a hitchhiker. And he, the hitchhiker, uh, kidnapped him. You know, he picked up the hitchhiker to, you know, probably he was a hustler. And the hitchhiker picked him up, uh, he picked him up, the hitchhiker kidnapped him, and my brother said, uh, he was 43 at the time, I have a heart condition, let me go. And at the guy wouldn't, and at the light, my brother jumped out of the car, ran to a hospital nearby, saw a cop, told him what happened, that he picked someone up, and he kidnapped him called my sister-in-law, 
told her that he what happened and he dropped dead on the spot. And I got a call to go to the funeral and an hour away we stay there for seven days usually and in deep mourning and I was really shook up and it started hitting the papers and I knew what would happen and naturally the guys in Missouri, when you do that and someone dies, that's a murder offense. So they found the guy, and I knew what the papers would say and what he would say, and we kind of puffed it down and kept it quiet as best we could. And I left after the seven days. My family was with me, young children, my aunt, my wife, and I went back to Nashville, and I went back in my car and my wife went home in her car and what did I do five minutes out of the airport someone shaking their head Bob what did I do I picked up a hitchhike and little did I know that the car behind me was my wife and my kids and my aunt do I hear groans Those were one of the mildest stories, you know. So, so, I got home, and my wife said, what was going on? How could you do that after the, no, no, no. And in my natural way, which was so natural, I just lied. Well, it was a patient of mine, and I just hated to see them stranded there. My best thinking picked up a hitchhiker after my brother just died, got killed because of it. And the embarrassment and the pain. My best thinking. And so, for uh, four years, took me about eight months to find a sponsor that I could really hook to. And the one I got, my wife found for me. <laughs> this crusty, mean guy. Mean, mean, crusty guy. Second World War vet. You know, just tough guy. And uh, he became the first man I ever loved, including my father. First man I ever loved and who I knew truly loved me. He couldn't say anything bad to me because, and he was a killer because I knew it was coming from love. He, um, I would call him and I'd get about 30 seconds from him. Because he was sponsoring, he was retired, and he'd say he had a few phones and he'd keep his office open. He was a realtor for people to come and just spend the day up there and do fifth steps and all that. And uh, so he was sponsoring who knows how many people. And you'd call him and, you know, you'd say things like, Cherry, I'm doing my fourth step and my about my mother and I'm really feeling upset and it's getting me very shook up and he'd say uh, well I suggest you stop doing it for a while keep it clean 
he'd hang up. It was simple. It was bothering me. Stop doing And this went on. The stuff he taught me over the years. Once I was in Florida, and I called him and I said, Cherry, I'm so isolated, so isolated, I can't get to a meeting, it's a mess here. And he said, Harvey, do you know what a person who sobers up an addict gets first? And I said, no. He said, he gets cheap. Go call up a rent-a-car place and rent a car. I said, oh, keep it clean. And he'd hang it up. (laughs) That was it. And this went on for years, and then he started doing something kind of special. He would have his wife, who was British, call Nancy and me to invite us to go traveling. He was a circuit speaker, his tapes all over about it, and he'd go traveling. He'd ask us to go with him, and I got to see that AA was not part of his life. AA was his life. And he was no different in a car than he was on the telephone. It was just who he was, a man in, in total recovery who apparently had been a sex addict, you know, from his story and other things, but uh, had cleaned up his act in his own way or sex abuser. And one day, um, he started losing weight and I... Uh, I called him every day, by the way, at least once a day. And he'd say to me, um, I'd say, Cherry, I'd really, I'm really upset. And he'd say, uh, when did this happen? And I'd say, oh, early this morning. And he'd say, oh, what time is it now? And I'd say, four o'clock in the afternoon. And he'd say, uh, what does the tenth step say, Harvey? And I said, what do you mean? He said, it says Promptly admit it. Promptly. (laughs) Keep it clean. (laughs) And one day he explained what keep it clean meant. It meant that the outside turns to shit. That's how he'd say. But the inside keeps getting better. It only gets better, he said. Well, he'd always tell the story how his sponsor was diagnosed with cancer and said, thank God he gave it to someone who could handle it. So one day my sponsor started... um, uh, Oh, by the way, Nancy, his wife was Nancy's sponsor. So if I didn't treat Nancy right, she called them up. (laughs) And they'd make me come to their house with her. And all three of them would beat me up. One day, I never was physical with Nancy in all my addiction. And about three years into recovery, I got physical with her one day. I started shaking her, physically abusing her. And she reported me. And they 
And it was something about her not keeping the house right or something, something really important, you know. And um, she, she, he brought me. They, they brought me there. Turned out, I ended up making the beds and cleaning the bedroom. And for almost today, except now, if I'm working such hours, I'm not doing it. But I clean the bedroom, and that's what he taught me. That if it's bothering you so much, do it yourself. But lots of things happened, and one day he started not eating. He started losing weight and wasn't digesting well. And one day I said, have you gone to the doctor yet? And he said, no. And I said, you got to go. And he said, okay. And a week later he never went. went. And I said, Cherry, either you go or I'll make an appointment. Do you want me to make an appointment? He said, okay. I called up a friend of mine, got him in, and that day they diagnosed, by just feeling him, stomach cancer. And he wouldn't get an operation until he went to California to do his speak. He had a talk to give. And he came back, and they did the operation. It was inoperable. And I'd go every day to be with him at the hospital, along with innumerable people coming um, and one day I'm crying and I I kissed him goodbye on the forehead and you know he was skin and bones and he said cut this shit out this crying you're just feeling sorry for yourself you've made me a father image and you think you're losing a father and just cut it out But months before, before I was diagnosed, I start noticing that he wasn't hanging up in 30 seconds. After a while, I was getting 20 minutes. And he was pouring into me. He was giving me all this stuff. Just everything he could. I had no idea he was dying. You know? So that I could come and travel around and I and Nancy could have people come to our house as couples to just give it away. And this is not my accountability partner. This was my sponsor. And then he died and I couldn't find someone. And finally I gave up and I kept looking for old guys, you know, who were crusty and rough. And I couldn't find one to replace him. He was one of a kind. And I found a 72-year-old woman who had about 25 years of recovery and spent years with her. And she taught me unbelievable stuff. She taught me how to speak to a woman. I'm a sex addict. I know, my wife will say it sometimes, I know only this. And this is how I talk to my wife. Nan, let's fuck. That's how I talk to her. That's how I know how to talk to women. And one day my wife was to get a hysterectomy. 
And um, my AA sponsor said, Harvey, tell her you'll be there for her. And I said, Mary, come on, I can't say schmaltz like that, and I can't say that kind of stuff. And I never said it, you know, didn't say it. And one day we're in a movie, we were up in Aspen, actually, at that theater on May, and we were in Aspen, and she was to get the hysterectomy a week later, and she was looking into space, and I said, what's wrong? She said, nothing. And I said, is it a, you worried about your surgery, your hysterectomy? And she said, yes. And I said, I'll be there for you, Nancy. And she started to weep. And I was there for her. But I had to be taught that. I had no tools. I used to use a a towel to wash my face and a towel to wipe my body and then toss them in the hamper and then at night shower again and do two new towels. And Cherry, when Nancy complained about laundry, Cherry said, Harvey, you use only one towel and you keep using it for like a week. I said, come on. I mean, you're talking about a guy who could have had crabs and all this stuff. Here I was not having crabs and worried about all this stuff and being clean inside. And so I listened to him. And use one towel now. My sponsor had to teach me how many towels to use. Now, he did teach me something I have not done. I must admit I'm not perfect. He really, he died a millionaire out of some fluky thing, but he um, loved to save money. So he said, and be sure in the middle of the night when you urinate, don't flush the toilet, you waste water. (laughs) It just stinks. I don't like doing that. So I flush the toilet. There are just some things, you know, but. Then Mary started getting senile. And so, you know, over the... So then, by then I had... Jess was my essay sponsor for years and years. And Jess, I had this rule. I never asked my sponsors the same thing. I felt it was manipulative and my disease, and splitting. And I just didn't. And um, it worked for, Jess was my sponsor, I guess, for like 14 years. Um, Jess taught me some beautiful things, like about the only thing we have to give to each other is love. Um, There was a period a year or two ago when I was getting hate mail, email, just horrible mail. Uh, Because people thought I thought a certain way and different things, and they thought Nashville was hell on earth or something. That's horrible letters. And um, they said that 
Jess and I, I mean, it was an awful thing about Jess and I were in cahoots to an anti-Christian fact. I mean, stuff I still don't understand today. But what got me in the email was they didn't know my pain, that Jess hadn't talked to me for a year before, because Jess and I made a terrible mistake. We went into business together. And one day, and Jess's son came in, and I'd go up to Bozeman all the time, and Jess would... um, um, and something happened with his son, and his daughter-in-law asked me a question, and I was real blunt with the answer. And she went to her mother-in-law, and, her, and Je- Jackie told Jess he couldn't speak to me anymore. And so I went through a mourning period, a grieving period, for about a year, year and a half, and then he died. And, um, he, his, some of it had been resolved with each other but but that letter you know the people didn't even know what they were saying about us that we weren't even in communication you know it just just and that's what could happen you know this is what happens in in life when we don't call people up directly and actually say something to them and things get all worked over but my sponsors were able to help me through it and I got a new sponsor, but the problem after Jess, an essay, was there was basically no one really available who had more sobriety than I had. And what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I got someone who had, at that time, eight or nine, probably ten years less than I had. And he's my sponsor, Bill. And I call him. And whatever I ask him, and he answers me, is exactly what I do. It has nothing to do with length of sobriety. It has to do with my total surrender. I cannot surrender to the program. I can surrender to its sponsor. And I have been given bad advice at times, and I have known it was bad advice at the time, and I did it anyway. Because I was better off with a bad result than taking life on on my own again without sponsorship. And I went for some uh, therapy, codependency therapy, and then had a therapist. He was a wonderful, wonderful therapist for about two, three years in group and all, many years ago. And he writes me little uh, therapy emails. And this week... He wrote me an email that was, I felt, evangelic and political. Actually, he was really anti-war. And starting to tell me what Christ would have done. And um, he crossed every boundary of mine. And it was too Harvey. It wasn't like it was one of his general letters. And um, he crossed my boundaries. And I was angry. So I 
called my sponsor and said, can I write an email back? <laughs> What's your motive? And I had to go through my motive. And then he said, okay, write it and call me and read it to me. and read it to him and he said fine I haven't done it yet I'm not even sure I will because I think the surrender took care of it because this guy must have been in pain to have done this to me you know and um, that's my life and sponsors there have been others and other things and now have a sponsor with 46 years in AA I, uh, I don't call my sponsors every day now I call them once a week each at my not my level of sobriety but my level of recovery meaning I probably get from 5 to 10 calls a day and um, I'm on the phone with people a whole lot and I tell them my top plate immediately. I don't give a shit. Whatever they're going through, I let them share it. I do my best. But then I tell them my top plate. My latest fantasy, my latest thought, my latest, latest ego issue. And um, if you want to call that accountability to someone, but whoever it is calls. And then... I'll tend to tell my sponsor it anyway. What I've been, to make sure I'm not telling the person who just called this, I want to avoid telling my sponsor. I have a rule of thumb. Anything I don't want to tell my sponsor, I must immediately. It's a rule of thumb. I go by a lot of rules of thumb, it, um, and that's one of them. If I don't want to call my sponsor that day, I have to call my sponsor. It's just been um, my other rule of thumb. When in doubt, do without until you call your sponsor. Um, Tom? I, maybe this is breaking rules and stuff or boundaries, but is it okay for me to say? Uh, recently, I've been sponsoring Tom. See, I paid him to bring me up here, so that's how it happened. <laughs> told him I wouldn't sponsor him anymore. Oh, I'm just kidding around. Tom, come on up for a minute and talk about, and I'm going to sit down, um, as the recipient without um, thinking what I'm going to think as best you can about what sponsorship and this kind of sponsorship is. I'm pretty direct and whatever. You want to share with the group? Now, uh, well, one of the things that's been fun for me to do in listening to you talk about Cherry is you use a lot of that with me. Um, Harvey uh, is very direct. And uh, I'll usually call and say, uh, and be kind of vague, like I'm having some lust for uh, a woman I saw. 
and Harvey will do just what he does in that group. He'll go, uh, come on, you know, tell me more. I have no idea what you're talking about, you know, and so I'll get more descriptive. And, um, and, uh, and then that usually sends Harvey to a place where um, he processes it and uh, shares some experience that he has. And what's interesting to me is as I listen to you, I, I think you do the same thing I do, which is I almost feel like um, sponsorship is my call gets you talking about something that's going on with you or went on with you. And so I personally get to learn from Harvey's experience, but I think you're probably getting something because you're processing. Um, but um, I, the calls aren't long. You know, we talk for, you know, it's interesting because sometimes they're fi- a lot. Most of the time they're like five minutes, but then sometimes they, they do last a lot longer. They might last 15 minutes. And, um, um, and uh, Harvey has said to me, I, you know, I'm, it took me a while, but, you know, and, and I go through periods where, you know, I kind of get afraid to call my sponsor. Either I've got a secret I don't want to tell him or um, I'm afraid he's too busy for me to talk to. Um, and Harvey told me the first time I talked to him, whenever you need to talk, call. And I'm just going to say, I used to do that um, with another sponsor of mine. I'm not totally there. I go through I go through cycles with Harvey, but and and I do feel like when I call him, he's busy because he's got a really busy job. Um, and I always feel a little uncomfortable. And I can tell it takes about 15 seconds maybe for him to kind of switch gears. And then again, it kind of has taught me as a sponsor, because I do the exact same thing. I have a really busy job. Somebody calls me. I'm usually a little irritable that they call. But then I, because I, I've seen him do it, I, I think I just kind of surrendered, and I do say a prayer, and it's actually helped me. You know, I think having a strong sponsor helps you be a strong sponsor. Um, I, um, Harvey actually sponsored me when I first came into S.A., and I actually did have two sponsors, and I did pit them against each other. And I picked up on it and, sh- and checked in with them on it and realized I needed to just stay with my sponsor here, who ended up being an awesome sponsor um, and very imperfect person, but a very perfect sponsor for me. Um, I think that's, that's what came out. I don't know if there's anything else you... Um, but I, what I do like about having a sponsor who's direct is I do feel like there. It's amazing to me how how I can see it very clearly for everybody else, but when it comes to me, I can't see it at all. And um, and I do think what you know, I love being able to call somebody and going, "Here's the situation. What should I do? I just had a legal problem, man. I got to tell you, it drove me nuts uh, with a former employer, and I was just obsessing about it. And Harvey said, Tom. Do you know a good lawyer? Get a lawyer. I want you to call the lawyer. I mean, he just was very descriptive or directive. Call the lawyer, and whatever that lawyer tells you to do, you do. Because I was going back and forth between, I'm going to go to her house and burn it down, <laughs> and maybe you know do something really nasty in between, like you know, had fantasies of raping her. Um, to to I'm going to just tell her to just wipe the slate clean. She can keep all my stock because I know she's really hurting, you know, and I swung back and forth. And so when Harvey said that, it was like, now I, I really just kind of give it to the lawyer. And I do obsess the day I go to him because, you know, we have to meet regularly because it's kind of a back and forth thing. But I'm amazed at how many days I'm free of it because just taking that simple advice, go to the lawyer and do exactly what he tells you to do. So it doesn't matter about me being, you know, a good person or a bad person. It's just like, this is just a legal issue. You know, that's what you pay a lawyer for. I'm going to give you a test question. Why else do you remember I carried out this phone? You have said to me, if 
can you do anything about it right now? And I'll say no. And you'll say, then just, I want you to put it off till tomorrow. Um, and I, I have to say that's still a, a thing I don't totally understand. And I would say about half the time you say it to me, I'm able to let go. And then about half the time I still get off the phone and I obsess like, well, how am I supposed to do that? You know, and I start obsessing about, you know, uh, how not to obsess about it. So <laughs> Now, that brings up, this is called the postponing method, by the way, guys, for worrying and obsessing. Worrying and obsessing is to postpone it till the next day. And the next day, postpone it to the next day until you actually see the lawyer. And how do you do that? Same technique of surrender we use for fashion. A rubber band on your wrist, or you say, God, whatever it is I'm looking for in that thought, may I find it in you. <coughs> or every time the thought comes up, you do another gratitude list. I called Karen, all upset. You say, Harvey, did you do your gratitude list today? Yes, I do 20 things every morning. And he said, Did you do your gratitude list? And I say, Yeah. had this weak spot that um, rabbi in Nashville who had this problem and just a mess and he came and um, finally intervened, got him into treatment and he was in treatment calling me, he was up in Montana and one day after a phone call my wife said to me, Harvey, do you know you use the same tone on the vo- in your voice to him that you used to use with the guys you were involved with. And I called Jess up immediately to tell him what Nancy said. I felt embarrassed, and I was, and um, he said, next time he calls, you tell him you can't speak to him again. I said, okay. Um, not too long ago, my sponsor wasn't in town, and um, there was this guy. I was um, uh, he just had a, a lot of trouble with pedophilia and stuff, and um, he was calling me, and um, we were doing the fourth step and the fifth step. And it was never-ending. And finally I said to him, hey, we'll do it by phone, because he was coming to the house and doing it, doing it by phone. And he'd give it to me over the phone, and I was feeling um, uh, aroused sometimes by it. It was just 
getting to me. And um, I called someone in Georgia who was a, a recovering pedophilist. And I said to him, um, this is what's happening, you know. And he said, oh, well, you know, this guy's being abusive to you. You're being abused. I said, no way. If anything, I'm being voyeistic, something I keep asking him to be more clear what he means. How can I blame him? And he said, um, you're being abused. Take it from me. You're to get rid of him as a sponsor. Sponsory. And I said, I can't do, you know, I just said to myself, I'm in the middle of the fifth step with him. We had about seven hours invested in it. But, I cannot not do, except that urinating in the toilet flushing, I cannot not do something I purposely ask someone about. I must do it. And the guy called me that evening, and I said to him, you've done nothing wrong. I'm not well enough for this. And I won't be able to finish this steps with you. And I prefer you not calling me. And I thought I would die. My voice still quivering when I'm telling you that. And I thought he'd go hang himself, he'd shoot himself, he'd never come back to say, you know, look what I'm doing to him, I'm abusing him, I'm doing terrible things to him. And he says, you mean never call you? And I said, yes. And we're very cordial and friendly at meetings. And after meetings, sometimes I'll talk with him, ask him how things are going. But I had to totally surrender to what my sponsor said. And he was my sponsor at that moment. Now, do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts are when people ask you to be be their sponsor if you have any length of sobriety. Any length. And you feel comfortable, you say yes. Because they never call you. Never think you're going to get too many phone calls. Most people never call you after they ask you. (laughs) So don't worry about it. Just say yes to everyone. (laughs) And those who do call usually stop calling anyone. And eventually you'll get a few people. And sponsoring people help you more than they get helped a lot of times. The other thing is a kiss-to-death question. What's a good time to call you? (laughs) Kiss-to-death question. They're calling you because they're dying. You don't say, I'm dying from 6 in the morning till 7. You've got to get a call when you can. And what I said, call someone when you need to. But by the way, I tend to go to bed, Nancy, me, about 10 o'clock.
You know, I got a call, some guy in Africa got confused and did a go, and you know, I got a call like three in the morning or four, and I'm a bear at first, and then I wake up and realize what's going on, and Nancy's screaming at me and annoyed, and you know, all this stuff, and, and uh, you know, I remind her that thank God for the program, you know. So, Paul. Do you have some questions? Because Paul was asking a bit. Okay. Um, good question. I choose the first premise is they must be available. So when Tom calls me and I happen to be with a patient at that moment, I will say to him, Tom, I will be available at lunchtime. picked up the phone to call, first of all, broke the obsession that he might have for a moment while he's dialing the phone. If he's dialing the phone, he's saying, shoot, I don't want to tell Harvey this. I can't believe I'm going to have to tell him or talk to him or that not that this is what's going on or it's that bad, but, you know, that's the thing that happens to me. It breaks the obsession while I'm dialing because I can't do two things simultaneously. And it's in that surrender, the call, that I'm getting some relief. And so a lot of times, people don't call me back because why, they accomplished it from their first call, even though they never... It's no magic that I'm going to say. It's the fact that Tom surrendered and said, shoot, I can't do this alone. The minute he reaches out, the problem solved is then God could work through him. <laughs> Doesn't even need my magic answer, which is you know. Once he left for something on the answering machine, I called him back with an answer on his answering machine, a quick answer. It was that simple. The, uh, so, um, I, at first, they have to be available. The best guy in the world is useless to me if I can't ever talk. So if Tom ends up not ever being able to reach me, I'm useless to him. Or he's not willing to call at a definite time that he knows I'm going to be available. Okay? Either way, I have uh, my sponsor... Uh, wallpaper and plaster and a lot of time he, um, he can talk to me while he's working but he's a big hunter and he's gone sometimes and I know if I don't reach him in a day or two you know I know and I've already shared it with other people I know he's probably out hunting somewhere I don't expect him to call me back I don't expect sponsors to call me back. I have to keep reaching them until I get them. It is not my sponsor's responsibility to get a hold of them. It's my responsibility. Tom knows that I'm going to have to go to sleep at some time. And if I'm not out of town, well, I'm using Tom as an example, and if it was rough enough and he needed to really talk to me, he knows eventually he'll get me unless i got to get home. 
I sponsored someone from Ireland, and he's real regular. And um, but he learned my stuff, and after a while, I say to him this: He'll call me at um, six at night, which or five at night, which might be three times sometimes, me sometimes not, but might be. And then he's real, not responding on the phone or something. And then I realize, and I say, "Hey, man." It's 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Will you shut up and go to bed? You're tired. And that's my great masterpiece. Go to bed. Get some sleep. Uh, then I need someone crusty. Need someone I can't pull uh, puff. I also have an agreement with myself. I cannot puff. I have to go right forward. The other green that I have with myself. And I really do. I don't paint the picture in my favor. Extremely hard thing for me. To lead with what I see right not what they did first. I channel, but with Tom, I hope that a lot of times I'm talking about a step. I'm saying in some way, hey, this is this is a third step issue. This is a powerless issue. This is a control issue. Uh, let's say, what is a sponsor for? He is to lead you through the step, either directly or indirectly. So if you've already worked the steps. I have to be very careful that I'm not in a fix-it mode. That I am in a step mode. So what was I doing with Tom about the lawyer? I wasn't fixing Tom when I said, call a lawyer and whatever he said, do. What was I saying? I said, Tom, get off my back after something. I can't solve it. The only thing that will solve it for you is total surrender. And the way you surrender is you take it to an expert and you do exactly what he says. Just what I told you about a sponsor. To let go is surrender. So I can say to Tom, Tom, this is a first step powerless issue. We talk first step surrender without the big problem. Now, sometimes I'll get it in a fixed mode, and I'll be in my disease, and then I'll have to make amends to people sometimes. But, you know, my disease is fixed in the 
country guy can't hardly grammar right. I have had more fun with him over here. He's angry at me right now. And, uh, um, past month, but we just saw him at the airport, so probably things will go. Because I couldn't handle him anymore. I really love him, but he needs to be on his antidepressant medicine. And when he's off of it, he starts getting totally obsessive and crazy. Just, just crazy with obsession. And then he'll call me three, four times in a row and then obsess on what I just said and call me back twice and all. And I know, and I kept telling him, hey, you need to be back on your medicine. I know you're off your medicine. And you don't want to listen to me. And you're on and on. And I said, thank you for sharing. <laughs> and then a few days later, I called him back to see if he was okay. And he said yes. And he spoke about two minutes. And then he didn't call me for, it's been about a month or so. And I've spoken to my sponsor about it. And only doing it through my sponsor. God was ready. He was the he worked at the security ballet at the airport for parking cars. And so we hugged and had a good time for a few minutes. God will take care of this stuff. I am boundaryless. How can I have boundaries? If anyone near me I want to have sex with and we try to have sex. So what makes me think I have boundaries now? I have to learn boundaries. I have to have help for boundaries. I have to be careful. And I'm telling you this from experience. You know, that rabbi kid I told you about, my sponsoree, Dave M. from Portland, I don't sponsor him now, but he had a beautiful long-term program, but he was from Nashville, too. And he and I would go over to this guy's house to clean his house for his wife and him and before a holiday. I mean, we got totally lost in this guy. My own experience, strength and hope. And my sponsor helping me not do it again. Cherry taught me this thing that I, he said it over and over, I couldn't get it for years. I only got part of it. It was, he'd say, Harvey, you don't know that person in the men. You made a mistake. You didn't try to harm him. Just say to yourself, excuse me, God, I made a mistake. Help me not do it again. And I never heard that help me not do it again. That's what it is. I do these things. I make these mistakes. I say, God, excuse me. I made a mistake. Help me not do it again. Uh, you know, we have, we were talking about how in Denver, this two-decade cycle, so we're not going to slip. Um, and I think, you know, one of the struggles I've had uh, is, is at what point, you know, when somebody is slipping, do you either let them go as a sponsor or as a sponsor? Um, 
cannot, in my opinion, you cannot have a sponsor who has slipped. He cannot be your sponsor. My face even turned and I felt anxiety when I said it. It's the most frightening thing in the world to me. To think that if I want what you got and willing to go at any length, well, if you got sponsors relapse and then I keep going back for it, well, you're missing something. You're not bad. You're just missing something. So that's what I'm going to get. I'm going to miss it. So why do you do? Like my sponsor, Roy, who relapsed. You say, man, what did he do to screw up in his program? It wasn't malicious. Something happened. What did he do? And I'd ask him. And then I'd avoid doing it. And that's how I do every time someone in SA sponsor relapses. They saved me another day. This I don't have to go out to do it to find out what they found out. There's a guy in AA, the National, who every time he would relapse and come back into a meeting, he says to them, Hey, was it good? Was it better? And they said, No. Shoot. I'm waiting for the day when someone finally says it was better. And then maybe I'll give it some consideration. <laughs> so Cherry would say, let that guy go out and relax for you. The way we did it was we did not get sponsors for them. We have to go out and Sensing that one to two guys sponsor most of y'all? Or are there a lot of people sponsoring here? How many of y'all are sponsors here? See the problem? 
one, two, three, four, five, six people are sponsors in a room of how many? Real rough. Some of you need to get to international conferences and start venturing out. Because, now, the only way to really get this, because otherwise, there's not enough time in the world for a few people to sponsor everyone. The only way to do this, then, is to do workshops where the sponsor gets all his sponsorees in at the same time and starts working on the steps and going out loud and doing it together and, and stuff like that. You're going to have to do some some stuff, some imaginative stuff. Uh, Betty truly, I would imagine, needs to be out of the city, sponsored. She really does, and that's what saved us in Nashville. I had sobriety, and this woman had sobriety. And she was a, um, I am a very, very, I'm very conservative in a lot of my ways, but very liberal thinking in my program for other people. And she was very, very liberal in her lifestyle stuff, but she was very, very conservative in the program issues. Very much like you get nationally with different things. And it was that wonderful juxtaposition that gave us the pillars, strength in our community of different opinions, different ways, that it wasn't just a stamp. Everyone has their own specialty. I was real good about getting sober myself uh, with God's help in the program and staying sober, but I couldn't start a new meeting to save my life. We had one meeting for about two years a week. And then this guy Judson shows up. And he couldn't make, he said, I can't do it on one meeting. So he started a second meeting midway during the week. And then he started a third meeting. And then he started a fourth meeting. And then he got a new job and he started a meeting where he had the new job. And he had the gift of the meetings. We had one girl, she didn't last long, but she got us our first church. Everyone contributed, had this uniqueness to help our fellowship. And so... This is how a, a, a fellowship grows. Yes. Twenty-five about. What three, four hundred thousand, and probably outskirts a million with all the cities. But we have, we get seventy to ninety. The other day we had ninety people at our Saturday morning meeting. We get 25 people every morning at 6.30, every morning. That 6.30 meeting been the best thing ever for, for me. I start my day and then go to work at 7.30. I start my day in recovery meeting. And one day a week we have um, a guy said, we're going to have this tradition and step meeting, and 
I am all my great knowledge and wisdom said they've never worked in Nashville. It's a wasted time. No one will end up coming. And it's one of the more successful meetings. Uh, how Nashville grows is that I never attend, haven't been to an internet, intergroup meeting in probably 10 years. <laughs> if you want a kiss of death for growth in the community, let there be a bleeding deacon. We're trusted servants, not bleeding deacons. And let me tell you, the lower profile I have in Nashville, the more it grows. And they will emulate my program. They will say things that Cherry would say. But if I tell them to do it, that will be the kiss of death. We are a fellowship, not an organization. This is kind of getting lectury, so I need to... to, um, kind of sit down and we've got a few minutes to say to you guys, let's turn the circle and have you share how you feel a sponsor could benefit you and where you are today. What your what you your block is for not calling or what your need is or you're ready to surrender. Okay? going to spend it on some couple stuff and then after this for those who want to we'll have a couple meeting uh, in a circle and people could share and whatever um, the uh, Nancy and I have been married for 42 years no how do you say it honey 41 41 it feels it feels like 42 <laughs> Okay, and um, I met Nancy, she was 17, and I was 19, and um, she's had to experience my addiction all these years, and thank goodness my recovery. Um, What I say is if our marriage made it, anyone's marriage could make it through this. what I knew about sex and relationship was from Daniel Steele's novels. So I knew absolutely nothing at the tender age of 17. Then I hooked up with this Joe and found out a lot of stuff. But like I said in my meeting today, it wasn't all bad during the rough stuff, and it's not all great doing the good stuff. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right, I lie a little Not bit still, just a little bit. It's never black or white. There's a lot of gray area in marriage. And what I put on the board, I don't know if all of you can see it, but it's a great big triangle. And we all go through these different parts. It's like we're actors and we play different parts. One of us is the rescuer at one point, one's the perpetrator, and one's the victim. And in my marriage, the role I loved best was the victim role. I was queen victim. I never wanted, and rescuer, I was a big rescuer in, in my mind. I never wanted to look 
at the time that I was a perpetrator. Because I was. So I went around and each of us would I take one role, he take a role, I take a role, he take a role. And this is what happened in our One person being the victim, or one person always being the rescuer, or one person always being the perpetrator. But we change roles. We go around and around. Harvey, you still awake? Good. I'm listening. Ah, did you learn anything? Yeah, I'm Thank you, The times I've been a victim. <laughs> Before recovery, Nancy used to be six feet tall. <laughs> and this is what this program has done. Beats you down no. from the head. <laughs> uh, actually, before the addiction, but there was never before the addiction. <clears throat> this is true. Uh, we'd like to tell a little story about um, my delusional system um, and about a topic. I said we talk a bit about celibacy. We, when I was 11 months sober and I realized I needed to do something else for my program, I said to Nancy, thinking she'd run out of the room screaming from horror of even such a thought, I said, Nan, how, what do you think about having a little period of celibacy? looked at me with hatred like I had never seen on her face and she said I have had enough sex with you to have lasted me a lifetime <laughs> now most normal people would have understood what that meant <laughs> so here we, we went through a period of six weeks of celibacy and I just proved what I wanted to prove. And I go to Nancy and said, Honey, I'm ready. Six weeks. And she looks at me and she says, I'm not. I couldn't believe it. So I call up my sponsor, Jess, and I said, Jess, can you imagine? I've done this great thing first time in my life, six weeks. And my wife doesn't want to stop it. And he said in his most gentle, loving way, hey, stupid. <laughs> I love Jess. <laughs> You're a sex addict. How the heck do you think you'll know when to end celibacy. And then came the whining. No, but there's still another piece. Oh, I forgot. What? And then he said to me, Ah, that's true. Let God talk through your wife. God decided about two years later, 21 months later. But who's counting? My wife, but who's counting? So, but you, went, you were saying about the whining. Then came the whining. Harvey was so pitiful. 
I'm going to get prostatitis. <laughs> My fingers are going to fall off. <laughs> My hair is going to turn gray. <laughs> My ears are going to get bigger. <laughs> I'm going to have to wear glasses. That was the first time in my married life that I was respected as a human being and that no was okay. And that meant a lot. I felt before that that the only thing that my husband cared about was what was between my knees and my belly button. But it get it got a heck of a lot better after that. Then there was the period of well, now that it's over, what do we do with that? How do we go so that it wasn't back to where it was? And that took a lot of doing. Really, it, it, it just really. Instantaneous, after the celibacy period, instantaneously wasn't great because we didn't know how to really handle ourselves. I sure didn't want to go back the old way. And um, Harvey didn't want to ask for sex. I didn't. It was just a, it, it was just a really difficult time until we found what really works for us. What does work for us, Harp? Do you what, know? What, what had happened was that my whole interaction as a man with my wife was based on between her nape on her knees. And any love and caring I had was always filtered through her proving this by us having sex. And that my, was my focus. And when, after the celibacy period, I became frightened that I, once I started asking, I'd become sexually abusive again, because I, I was a chronic sexually abuser of my wife and would rape her throughout our marriage. And um, I was afraid, and so I kind of couldn't ask. And what had also happened was that because I had to have sex with Nancy twice a day, for, what, 25 years or something. Um, and, you know, we slept with locked doors. Uh, our kids could never come in. This I always wanted to be sure I could have sex with my wife. And um, so Nancy never had to develop any sense of what it feels to be sexual because I never gave her a chance feeling any kind of sexuality in her. And we once went to that lecture, remember that impaired physician course or something, and they just got me so frightened in this. We were in recovery at the time, but they had these sex therapists and they said, who in this audience will stand up and show their sexual tool? Tools. And I thought I'd die. You know, didn't they know I was a recovering sexaholic and I can't be, I was ready to ruin 
leave and all of a sudden two people stood up and the therapist said thank you because they were the sexual tools not their genitalia they were they were sexual beings and we never developed that sense of sexuality within our marriage it's everything is geared to genitalia so Nancy would not ask for it very much and my amend was not to ask her and be abusive had to do a living amend and um, the living um, you know I just had you know messed up a lot of stuff and I just really needed a living amend and it would be very rare but then after a few years Nancy said to me you know Harvey it's okay you, you could ask and then I couldn't ask I was just shut down, frightened. And by the way, I, I want to share this. There's this guy, Judson, shares it a lot with us, and I never believed it, but I do now. He said, underneath our sexual addiction are people totally frightened about sex. <clears throat> that I could act out, but... I am frightened. So if I see Nancy nude, I get frightened. And the only way I deal with it, not because she's not attractive, uh, but the only way I deal with it is to try to jump her bones. I, I can't describe it, but this is why I have to turn it to lust to deal with my being frightened for whatever reason in my childhood or whatever, you know. Well, um, eventually, I would ask periodically, and over, what, 10, 12 years, 15-year period, we have, we have a balance. And in our marriage now, you know, it's not what I thought my frequency you know, would be. But it turns out to be a couple of times a month. Maybe if you're good. If I'm good. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> if I sneeze wrong, Nancy will say to me, that's it for another year. <laughs> and I'll say, what else is new? <laughs> and we're... Go ahead. What you see before you is couple who have been through a lot of really bad experiences. Really bad. My husband very generously gave me a sexually transmitted disease. A few times. <laughs> and it was a very difficult time throughout a lot of part of our marriage. What we have now is a hell of a lot of fun. And we can joke about stuff like this. And this is only within the last 10 minutes or so. Right. No. 
This retreat has done wonders for us. This has been really within the last maybe few years that we can do this. Because, you know, in Essanon meetings, early on Essanon meetings, you could cut the tension in those rooms with axes. Today there was laughter. We can joke about some of this stuff. You guys are funny. (laughs) We can actually have a good time. Even amidst all the problems and everything that happens. um, I want to tell you how slow this is. Uh, Last week, two weeks ago, but who's counting? Yeah, two weeks ago, uh, oh, so before I forget, the wind-up is to protect myself. I only request sex every other time. It's my safety valve. I really don't ask twice in a series. And so that way I kind of know about my own pacing. If it's good once, man, it will be better three times, you know. So my pacer is all messed up. So that's how I pace myself. Well, last time was my turn, I whatever to ask. And we don't rigidly do this, and we might. We don't at all. He does. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened was I asked Nancy one evening and I said honey are you too tired tonight and she kind of um, but we it was we had some, our intimacy the next morning I woke up and I said Harvey you did it again you in a mild way was abusive you didn't say to your wife would you like to be sexually intimate? Would you like to have sex? You said, are you too t- Are you tired? You really never asked permission. And so we were sitting at breakfast. And I said to Nancy, Nan, you know, I've, looking back at it, I really didn't handle that right. And she shook her head and agreed, naturally. No. And, I never argue with yeah, my husband. Right. And um, I said to her, Nancy, how would you like me to ask you for sex? And there was... Dead silence, because I still can't answer that question. Because I don't know. I and, just don't know. And I said to her about two minutes later, honey, why can you say anything to me? I said, hon, we've been doing this for 40, at least 41 years approximately. And uh, tell the truth, honey. Yeah, about 43 years. Yeah. And we've been. <laughs> And um, she said, I said, we've been doing this for 43 years, and we still don't know how to ask for it. 
this is how crippling this disease gets. And so I start making some suggestions. Would you like me to say this? Would you like me to say that? And I could see Nancy was just shutting down on me. And what I did was I laughed and I said, God, it looks like we're on a tension area. And I dropped it and I brought it up at a meeting and asked people, see, I never have to be alone again. And I asked people how they asked. And someone said something that I liked. They said, would you like to be sexually intimate tonight? No. <laughs> no. I've got a blush. Okay. And it was a suggestion. And you know, I, I need to hear this. My disease started at about 11, really 11 and a half. So I am emotionally, sexually, at an 11 and a half year old level. And over the years, I have been able to grow some. So, you know, this is all an area that, that we're still evolving and working on. Uh, I have one thing to say. What I brought up in the Essanon group today, and I think it, it's, um, I want to share it in this whole room. Do you know what my definition of foreplay is? When my husband will call up and say, Hun, do I need to stop at the store to get you something? That's my definition. The consideration of me as a human being. And I can't hear her. I can only think of foreplay meaning, will it help with an orgasm? That's all I can do. At least today, we're beginning to hear. I had an experience about six months ago. I sat Nancy down one day, and I looked at her in the eye, and I said, Nancy, what do you like done to you sexually in our marriage bed? Right there? Yes, you did. Yes, okay. And I told you. And she told me. For the first time? For the first time I could hear. She had told me this before. I'm telling you, it would have been like talking a foreign language. Because what I think is what I think she should like. Not what she thinks she should like. Well, I'm telling you that I have heard it. And I am different. And I can't tell you on non-sexual levels the joy of my finally knowing I am enough in recovery today that I was able to actually hear what my wife said to me. And then the thinking of it when I'm intimate with her. Uh, this is recovery. Nancy and I are old timers, which means we had nobody 
nobody's shoulders to stand on. And it's taken us a long time. You guys and gals can stand on people like us, our shoulders, and see further than we do. They say that a student standing on the shoulders of their teacher can always see further. A sponsoree standing on the shoulders of a sponsor can always see further. Have the opportunity by talking about it, by not keeping it secret, by sharing it, to get the experience of other people who have had to really learn the hard way because there was no one around to tell us. And not to keep this subject secret. Subject I'd like, yes. Do you know how to become an old timer? You don't die and keep coming back. And that's all it takes is to be an old-timer. Just keep suiting up and showing up. And to stay sober. Nothing we're saying. I want the Essanons to hear this. I believe, and I could be wrong, but I don't believe it works if if the addict is not sober. Essanons have to be very careful not to enable a sexaholic. You will love them to death. If I waited for my wife to stop enabling me, I would have died. And probably murdered her with AIDS, killed her with AIDS. Probably would have gotten AIDS. Only reason we're alive because there wasn't a significant AIDS pool back in the early 80s. And you could trust us as far as you could throw us. And also the progression of the disease. If you think pornography isn't so bad because it's just pornography, like masturbation isn't so bad because it's just one person, the disease progresses. And you never hear the truth because we don't know the truth. How can we be honest with you if we're lying to ourselves? But you will know when that person is sober. You will know it. And you will know when they're drunk if you're not in denial. Go with your gut. Don't let us talk you out of it. We are wheelers and dealers and maneuverers and manipulators. Nancy once found a motel slip, a receipt, of someone who is living in our house. I mean, you can't imagine the disease in our house what my disease touched. And what Nancy, when Nancy confronted me, I started yelling at her, telling her, I work so hard, wife, four kids, look at this house, what would I do? I work so hard, I need this. I beat her up verbally. 
circle starts again. So all we're saying really is a lot about recovery. <laughs> we're not easy. We're not easy. I mean, this, this is one of the hardest acts in town. <laughs> this disease ain't easy. This, this disease is about going up and shooting heroin. This disease is about thinking and getting your endorphins shot up in your head. Doesn't take much to get us drunk. On another note, we usually are asked about what do you do and how do you tell kids? You want to talk a little about, oh, we said we'd talk about full disclosure. You want to talk about Full disclosure. How much you should tell your wife? Or you spat? There's things here, so we won't say just your wife. Um, I've seen it done both ways. Especially if the addict is in good recovery and it's not happening. It's not happening. This might have happened six months, a year ago. Why bring it all up? What's the sense? What's my motive for wanting to hear every person, everything that Harvey has ever been with? What would be my motive? A lot of it is, it's titillating. I'm not doing it. Boy, this sounds kind of different. What's it going to do for me if I hear all this stuff? My sponsor used to tell me, don't bring up the past. It's not happening today. Why should I hear about it? You know, I've I've heard some of my Asnan um, sisterhood say, you know, I've heard of it, now that's all I can do is think about it. I, I can't get this image out of my mind. So if I can't get it out of my mind, I'm not in the present. So if I'm not in the present, I'm no good to me, to my spouse, to my children, to my job, because I'm so focused on what happened eight months ago. And why did he do it with my best friend? Or my sister? You know, why did that happen? Or my brother? Full disclosure is just the most ridiculous thing because you guys ain't going to give full disclosure. You may not even know your own full disclosure. And you know, when I tell a story, I embellish it just a little bit to make me look really good. Now, if I do that, aren't you guys going to do it? So where's it going to go? What's going to be the benefit? I don't know the benefit from this. Now, there are some therapists who do this, and some of them have a program. They follow it up with polygraph tests. They have a whole program. So they have full disclosure. The wife gets to know everything and then 
they get polygraph tests, and the wife gets to know the spouse if it's, you know, continued that, and they're doing okay. Um, that's therapy. We don't do it the therapy. We do a 12-step. And 12-step tells us in the AA book that alcoholics should not do true confessionals, basically. And the SA book says that, too. We need to do them, but not to our life. Because sometimes what we think is sharing is really dumping. And that's with a lot of stuff, just not sex. We often talk about this, you know, those real good, deep talks you have conversations. about conversations about at 10 o'clock at night, and you look and it's about 2 o'clock in the morning and you're still at it, and these in-depth stuff. Man, you talk about poison in our lives, it was those conversations. We don't do that. I have never told Nancy my story in 19 years. She has never brought it up, and I have never spoken about it, other than what we say here. And as I shared at lunch today, in my speaker meetings, I won't I change my story. I don't cha- make it up. I just change the topic if Nancy ends up there. Because my amend to her is that she doesn't have to live this again. She's lived it once. However, Nancy knows my whole story, and we talked about it today. When we were two years sober, it was unheard of. No one ever you know, heard of two years sobriety, you know. Basically, so Patrick Carnes came to L.A. to our S.A. conference and wanted to interview all of us who had two to three years. Yes, that was it, other than Roy. Roy had much more um, that he had done, but then came Jess's year and then uh, my year, approximately. But so it was that period. And... Um, the graduating class of 1984. And um, he interviewed us. And we were to, we were told it was to be used for a study. Well, about three years later, he comes and does a, you know, type out of the shadow workshop in Nashville. So I invite Nancy and I invite my the nurses at the hospital I worked at, the social workers, and all of a sudden on the screen, he writes, and this is the best example of sexual addiction I have come across. And he goes, this man's mother was a sex addict. He said, oh man, that's interesting. And, gee, you know, that's a little like maybe my family. And his brother died from this disease, and he was a rabbi. Uh, physician. I said, Nancy, I can't believe it. There's someone else in the pro 
my story went up on the screen. And we knew it was me, it was I, and so did my nurses and the social workers. And people came up to me afterwards and said, we are so sorry this happened. And so I went up to Patrick after the meeting. And I said, Patrick, you know, you really need to learn to camouflage needs a little better. <laughs> Especially if you're in St. Louis and someone recognizes my brother after he's dead from this disease. May he rest in peace. But after the meeting, I went back to the seminar to my meeting at 5 o'clock and I said, you know, guys, when God wants my wife to know, he wants her. And it was the time Nancy was to know. Not that she hadn't read my story without me knowing it in the blue book that it was in anyway, but we really haven't had to talk much about it. Our kids have always known I'm an essay. They were teenagers or younger when I started. They're all grown, married, have wives, three of them. Um, my daughter-in-law was pregnant, and she said to me one day, when I have the baby, I don't want any of your sexaholic friends around it. And I said, Jody, are you concerned? I'm a pedophilist, and I'm, I'm saying, I said, yes, I want you to know that it's not one of my problems. However, I will understand if you don't want me alone with, your, with my grandchild. And she said, no, it's fine. And she just, man, if she'd give them to me, for months that she could. I mean, she just, and, and what happens is she refers us a lot of her friends and asks us to 12-step. Recently, I had a priest friend of mine who we sponsor, and I told this story today, come in. Uh, he's in Africa now, and, and he came into town and you know, I, we invited him to spend a weekend this. He's uh, was out of Africa for a few months, and he she meets him, and she assumes if they're at my house, they're sexaholics. And she meets him and looks him in the eye. They're having a conversation. And all of a sudden, she says to him, "Are you one of those priests who do those things that the newspaper writes about?" And he looked at it and he said, no. And he started to laugh. And he said, this is the most refreshing event I've had to finally have someone be straight out and ask me rather than just be thinking about it, you know. Uh, the kids used to say to us, um, hey, guys, you going to one of those lust buster conferences again? <laughs> Um, and then you want it, but um, 18 and a half years later, I was in recovery. My 33 year old son, you want to tell the story? 
he um, had a girlfriend and um, brought her to our house and we were all just sort of talking in the den and he starts tearing up and he says um, I want to know dad why you're an SA and this, this is the child who early on when we first got into the program Harvey used to leave his, his literature all over and this kid was the one who said please take it away my friends are you know it's just not good to have all this literature hanging around so he said to Harvey, I want to know why you're an essay. And Harvey said, well, I'll go up and I'll give you the brochure and you can read the problem. And so he said, no, I want to know why you're an essay. I want to hear your story. So Harvey said, in front of Kelly? And he said, yes. So I thought I would absolutely die. I wanted it go under the couch and never come out there again because I didn't know what Harvey was going to say. And he said... First I said to myself, God, talk for me. Then I remembered what Cherry always told me since I don't need a brain of my own. So I heard his voice. He's been dead 15 years or so. I heard him... No, about 13 years. I heard him say, tell the simple truth. Now I want to tell you, it's a digression, what we mean by the simple truth. Nancy and I once went to a SASNI International Conference in Salt Lake City. So we decided we wanted to see the Mormon Tabernacle. So we go and we go on a tour and after it was over, the tour guide said to us, and why are you in, Saint, uh, in Salt Lake City? And I said, oh, we're at a meeting, the simple truth. And he said, oh, what kind of meeting? Conference. I said, what kind of conference? So I said, the simple truth, a recovery conference. And he said, well, what kind of recovery? <laughs> and I said, a 12-step recovery. <laughs> and then he said, what kind of 12-step <laughs> conference? And I said, Sexaholics Anonymous. And he said, thank goodness I found someone who knows about it. I have a friend who desperately needs to go. And I've been looking for it. That simple truth. God directed that. My old ways are either to lie and not say anything, or you ask me what kind of meeting and I tell you about my whole history and essay. <laughs> and why I got there and everything that happened everything I did prior to that okay so he asked for the simple truth and I said God talk for me first thing I said was son I have a disease and my disease was manifested and is manifested when I'm not recovery by and then I did for you all who know what this is 
I did my qualifier. I said, it was manifested by my being a... Um, I'm going to say it, it's a mixed group, but if, I hope it's not invading your boundaries. Um, that I, am, I was a compulsive masturbator, I was sexu sexually abusive to your mother, and I was promiscuous, mostly gay. Period. And all of a sudden, he started to cry in front of his girlfriend, and he said, Thank you, Dad. I want to tell you how much I have respected your program, and thank you for sharing that. dinner. <laughs> I kept it simple. I also said, and if there are anything else you need to hear, oh, that's what I said, you'll have to need to ask me. And that's when he said, Dad, and he cried and he said, Dad, have the respect. The next day he was back in Atlanta and I had called her, he had called and I said, Seth, and that was a pretty heavy evening last night. And he said, oh, it's okay, I'm back in denial. <laughs> and I said, good, because I am too. And we both laughed, and that's been it. Our, rec our relationship over the past many years has just flourished. This was a boy I couldn't stand. <laughs> he was the youngest he was most affected by my disease and I just couldn't stand him he had the most cutting cutting stuff to me and one day all of a sudden I don't know if Nancy said something or what I said to myself maybe he's not cutting me down Maybe this is a warped sense of humor. Maybe this is his kind of humor. And I decided it wasn't even warped. It was that man. I am. You don't look at me right. I think you're after me. I never had a sense of humor. Once I heard it in humor... I started laughing when he'd say it. I'd do a little cut back, but we have more fun. We laugh more together. He just says, Dad, you're you're getting better at this than I am. And you know, just go on. Now, how did that come about? It came about that I sponsored for a few years until he fired me. This guy um, who would say these terrible cutting remarks to me really hurt my feelings. Anytime he'd talk to Nancy, she'd be rolling on the floor laughing. Well, it turned out it was his sense of humor, and I was hearing it as cuts. And once I started relaxing with what he was saying, man, I just enjoyed him. And I learned from him about my son. This is how this program works. This is called our learning center. <laughs> this is like my kindergarten, my learning center, where I learn life. Okay, that's about it. Why don't we let people ask questions? How's that? You have something to add? Mm -mm.
Let's, why don't you ask me some questions? About um, 10 years ago, Nancy and I were asked to speak at a um, conference in Portland at one of these retreat centers that was kind of a campground. And uh, for us, our biggest camping, being city folk, was a Holiday Inn. And uh, there we were in a kind of a tent with these bugs, and oh, it's awful. <laughs> and um, But we were meant to be there, and interestingly enough, about three weeks later, I ended up having um, bypass open-heart surgery, four bypasses, and... Um, Luckily, it didn't happen there, because <laughs> I really would have been in trouble. And we were to have a closing for Sunday morning, and we're early in the morning, and Nancy said, what are we going to speak about or do? And I said, uh, I don't know. And then I said, why don't we get on our knees and ask God to do this for us? And we did. And we start talking to each other about forgiveness. And we did this thing. We didn't know what we were doing. And uh, this is where it is today. So you're seeing a process that has developed over the uh, past 10 years. Um, about a year ago, we did it with a group of recovering 
Hasidim. I don't know for many of you who might not know what this is. This would be the equivalent of the Pennsylvania Quakers in, in Judaism. Uh, they're in essay recovery and pretty much isolated among themselves. And we went to this and we said, this will never work having one of these with these people. And um, uh, I, I just couldn't believe hearing the forgiveness and the working through of most of these people were either Holocaust survivors or children of Holocaust survivors. And, um, and on that note, I'm going to lead off with a few of these forgiveness stories. And then Nancy and I are going to begin the forgiveness exercise. Um, and then we're going to have you share with us. Um, a lot of this was embedded in my mind uh, probably 15, 16 years ago when I was in Al-Anon and someone suggested I read a Reader's Digest article. And the Reader's Digest article, I thought, years later looking back on it and how I told it, was about a Catholic nun who was in Europe and she and her sister hid Jews from the Nazis. And one day the Nazis caught them and put her and her sister in a concentration camp. And one day this camp guard murdered her sister in front of her. And towards the end of the war she said, if I ever survive this, I will spread the word of forgiveness of this horrible life that has happened here. And so the war ended and she went around Europe talking on forgiveness. And one day she looks in the audience and there's the man who had killed her sister. And she says, God, I can't look. It's the man. I hate him. I hate him. Can't look at him. And she said, I just won't look. I hate him. And at the end of the talk, she said, I'm not going to look. And, and she went on the line. And all of a sudden, he walks up to her. And he puts out his hand. And he says, I know you know who I am. Do you forgive me? And she said, God, I hate him. I hate him. I can't ever forgive him. I hate him. And then all of a sudden she said, but God, let me touch his hand, please. And she put her hand in his, and she experienced forgiveness. Well, I went around for years telling that story because of my childhood issues and forgiveness issues I needed to try to have. And one day, Nancy and I go to Holland. And we're living in a community called Zandvoort. And 
You take the train from Zandvoort for about 30 minutes to get to Amsterdam. And on the way, every day, I'd see this community called Harlem. Here we would say Harlem, but Harlem. And one day I said to Nancy, Nan, let's get off the train and go look at this town. And we did, and we walked in a beautiful ancient town square, and I see a sign, Free Museum. My eyes went up. Yeah. <laughs> now, no jokes now. <laughs> and my eyes lit up, and I said, let's go in. And it said, the museum <laughs> for Corey de Boone's hiding place. We went in and sat in her parlor. And it turned out they told the story. It was a Reader's Digest story. She wasn't a Catholic nun. She was a Protestant who was very spiritual and wrote that book, essentially The Hiding Place. And we walked in <laughs> to where she hid the people. And we left there and I said Nancy God has brought me 5,000 miles to this most important story in my life of forgiveness to put total closure that I lived it with this person another story happened and then I'll end with this one one day I was at an international conference essay in Rochester and this woman an Essanon talked about um, God with my eye operation I can't tear I, I burn my eyes burn um, talked about how she was sexually molested by her brother for years and years and years and finally, and her mother always knew about it. And in adulthood, her brother um, continued to molest her as adults. And one day she got into recovery and she realized she could never talk to these people. She had it just totally cut off from her mother and her brother. And then one day she gets a message years later that her mother is dying on her deathbed. And so she goes and she makes a decision and she goes to her mother's deathbed and sits in the bed and holds her mother and tells her mother all the things she had always wished her mother had said to her, she instead said to her mother. Well, I left there and I walked out the room and I went and called my mother up. I said, Mom, just calling you to tell you how much I love you. And for the first time she ever acknowledged anything she said 
but how could you with what I did to you? And I said to her, Mom, I forgave you a long time ago, like I hope my children have forgiven me for my past. And that, I've told that story many times, but this part, I haven't really been able to share much. And that's my mother moved to Nashville in her later years, and we took care of her. She had her own place, but and at 89, she kept getting sicker and sicker, and I kept dragging her to the hospital to keep her going. And they, she had a living will, and uh, she didn't want to go on this way, and she kept telling me this, and I kept dragging her to be helped. I totally ignored her will, her living will. And then one day, I just realized, Harvey, you're back in ego again. You don't want her gone. Um, you still want to keep her. You need to let go. And I brought her back in because she needed to come in. And I was at a 6.30 SA meeting. She was at the hospital in the morning, and Nancy came to get me and to tell me my mother was dying about eight months ago. And I rushed over to the hospital, and there she was, drowning in her fluids, frightened, just terrified. And I was alone in the room with her, and I said, God, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, I heard that woman's voice from 10, 12 years before saying, I sat in the bed and held her and told her. And I got in the bed and I held her and felt her relaxing and asked for her forgiveness for anything I might have done to her and how much I loved her. And at that moment, as she's done, and I'm saying these things, I experienced this energy that said, Harvey, if you could love your mother with what she did to you, how much more I love you all. And I felt God's love at a level that I did not feel I could ever experience. Yes, I knew that if I could love my mother this deeply, how much more God loves me. Uh, <clears throat> Nancy, would you like to share? I think this ties right into the ninth step when we make amends to people. Because during that ninth step, we ask them 
for their forgiveness for all the things that we've done to them to harm them. That's one of the most difficult yet important steps in the 12 steps because it's not for them. It's for us. When we make an amend for the wrongs that we have done to another person, it's not so that they will think, oh, aren't they wonderful? They really realize what they've done, and now they're coming to ask my forgiveness. That's not what it is. It's clearing my insides out. It's clearing me. It's sweeping my side of the street, making sure that all that stuff can be released. Because if I keep all that stuff in me, the hatred, the unwillingness to go on, there's no room for anything new and light to come in. You know, Harvey was talking about that inner glow that's covered up. Well, part of that is the stuff that we keep putting layers and layers on of the inner glow. So by making the amends, asking the forgiveness... Because whether they accept it or not, and they may not, that has nothing to do with it. You know, there's a saying, what anybody thinks of me is none of my business. (laughs) And so I think this is it too. If they don't accept my amend, I'm sorry, but that's not why I'm making it. That's definitely not why I'm making the amend. It's for me. All this is for me. You know, this is called a very selfish program. And the more I can get out of me so I can let new new learnings come in. And where do I get my learnings from? Where, who teaches me? Where do I get this from? It's from you guys who sit out there who share your experiences, your strengths, your hopes. Harvey's had a a lot of experiences over these years. Some good and some not so good. But I can learn. I can learn from both of them. I I shared something with with an Essanon person, oh, not an hour ago, and she said, you know... It's so wonderful to know, paraphrasing, you still have clay feet. And I don't think I'll ever get to the place where I will not have clay feet. I made an amend to Harvey's mother years ago because I was certainly not the wonderful daughter-in-law. And she did something with the amend that I would rather her not have done. But that was her. But I know, 
I had cleaned my side of the street. And that's all I need to do is keep my little broom. In my case, it may be a big broom. And keep sweeping it up. There was something I did in the Esnon group during this weekend. Is It's something I said, Fido, forgive it and drive on. It's one of my own personal Nancy slogans that I made up. And I also believe what goes around comes around. And as Harvey said, if I want my kids to forgive me for the abusive type mother that I was, then I have to learn to forgive other people. I can only do one thing in my life. That's all I can do. Nothing I say will sway you or change your mind or do anything. You can only look at me with your eyes. My actions are the only things that I can give. Nothing else can I give away. It's just doing the action. So what Harvey and I had started and what we're going to do is to light a candle because what happens, what grows in darkness? What grows in darkness? Huh? Pardon? Secrets. Fungus, mold, addictions, lies. Everything is in darkness. So the candle is going to symbolize light being brought into your life. So Harvey and I are going to start off with sort of modeling, because again, the only thing I can give to you is not my words, but my actions. Where else but in a 12-step recovery program will you get a Jew using the prayer of St. Francis <laughs> for our talk and meditation? Uh, we're going to talk a bit about it. And then we're going to have Joe lead us through a guided imagery meditation for those who would like to participate. Um, I had a tough time with this prayer of St. Francis. Until my Catholic sponsor said to me, just call it Francis's prayer. <laughs> Don't worry about it. He's just a guy, and eventually I took his advice, just like my process of coming to believe, uh, first saying higher power, and then God of my understanding, and then God, and it's a process. Um, this program has taught me, and the prayer of St. Francis is such a good example of it, um, a, a very special awareness of God. 
And I want to tell you a few of those awarenesses I've been taught. When I came in here, I had a God of my mother's understanding. And that God said that because of what I was doing, he was going to kill my children in car accidents. And I would wait up night after night for my teenage sons to come in because I was convinced they would be killed. And when they weren't killed, thank God, I said, you know, what kind of God is that who lets me get away with this crap? <laughs> there can't be a God. No God would let me do what I was doing. And so I became a Um By the time I got to the program, I was agnostic. And over the months and months, uh, in AA especially, I was sitting there and anyone who mentioned God, I learned to turn them off and not listen to what they had to say. And then I was convinced that AA was really a secret evangelic Christian organization and that they were really out to get me. And one day this guy came up to me with this little black book and said, you need to um, read this and I'm thumbing through it. It was the 24-hour book that you get and it had God in it and I said, I knew it. I knew it. This was really a push this whole thing. And after a while, you sit at meetings long enough, you realize even the Christians are feeling the same way. You know, everyone's worried they've got to get the push and that their family stuff and they don't want to be pushed. And, and I was in the exact place I needed to be with the same people I needed to be with. But one day this guy was sharing. And he said, you know, I've been in one jail after another. His name is Greg. I was in one jail after another, and in one mental hospital after another. And one day, I was in this bar and doing terrible things with my chains and my leathers and the peanut shells all over. And he said, you know, my God saw me do every one of those despicable, low life things I did and he loved me so much he brought me to AA and I said I want me one of those guys and so I began by saying Greg's God and that's the God I had for quite a while called him Greg's God and over the years, that God of unbelievable acceptance and love has become my higher power. I, Cherry, my sponsor, would say, Harvey, do you think God loved you when you were doing all those 
low life things you would do. And I'd finally say, yeah, I guess so. And he'd say, well, if he loved you then, he must be hog ass wild about you now. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times he said that to me when I would call him feeling my life is about over, this is the worst thing ever, when the old memories would come back, and he'd keep bringing it up to me. He also would remind me, and he did it so visually, that Joe would be able, and you've been given a gift, Joe was able to use words, uh, picture words, and um, he had this picture word of saying that people like us spit in God's face, and he merely took the spit, wiped it off, and hugged us even more. That's the picture I have of my higher power who just loves me and loves me and proves it every day by bringing me here. He understood I had a disease. He knew what I was going to do before I even did it. And he loved me and it all came one day to fruition about eight years ago and I shared this story this weekend with some people. Nancy and I went to England and we were at a, I was at an essay meeting. And there to start their meetings, they um, read from a blue book where our stories are in. It's a story book. It's kind of a big blue book. And my story's in it. And I said, Harvey, don't say anything. It's going to be ego if you let anyone know your story. The guys are going to, you know, thank God. Instead of being infamous, famous or something. You you don't need it, Harvey. Don't say anything. So we come around the room. And we introduce ourselves. And all of a sudden, I began to weep. Just weeping. And it, because at that moment I understood it all, I still, it hits me. I saw it all. I saw my 11th step so clear what God's will for me was. It was that my story had to be so bad, <laughs> so low life so sick, had to be so rough that it got into this book that was read 5,000 miles away that will possibly save someone's life. And all that stuff from the past just became part of the beauty of that's what I had to do. My AA sponsor said we could not have missed one of those things we did, or else we wouldn't have gotten ready for where we are now. So everything we did was part of the journey.
On that note, let's read a bit and hear what they say on step 11. This is really what we're talking about this morning. Step 11. And for those of you who are not familiar with step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. People forget at times what this really means. We get lost in the first step where we acknowledge we are powerless. We are without power. But we forget that when we work the steps and we get to the 11th step by then, guess what? We're no longer without power. We now have power. The power to carry that out. We get to know His will and get the power. So when we get those moments, whether you're essanons or essays, those moments, those turning points, where we were powerless over our behavior before, by using the knowledge of God's will for us, we have the power to carry that. Bill says, Bill W., well, we might start like this. First, let's we're going to back up. The actual experience of meditation and prayer across the centuries is, of course, immense. The world's libraries and places of worship are a treasure trove for all seekers. It is to be hoped that every AA who has a religious connection which emphasizes meditation will return to the practice of that devotion as never before. But what about the rest of us who, less fortunate, don't even know how to begin? Well, we might start like this. First, let's look at a really good prayer. We won't have far to seek. The great men and women of all religions have left us a wonderful supply. Here, let us consider one that is a classic. Its author author was a man who for several hundred years now has been rated as a saint. He won't be biased or scared off if by that fact we won't be biased, biased or scared off by that fact because although he was not an alcoholic, he did, like us, go through the emotional ringer. And as he came out the other side of that painful experience, this prayer was his expression of what he could then see, feel, and wish to become. And here's the prayer. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. You know, I started all this off yesterday morning by saying the way I prepare for these talks is to get on my knees before him and ask God to talk to me. So I'm a channel. People will say what I've said and I just don't even know I've said 
explain to you all, not only don't I know what I said, but you're going to hear what God wants you to hear of what I said, which might be totally different from what I said. <laughs> Let me be this channel that where there is hatred, I may bring love. In my life, I have been given a wonderful gift. A wife for 43 years I've known her who really loves me. But I was not given a gift. You know, we each, God has this giant bag of gifts and he hands them out. We get some, we don't get others. And my mother just couldn't get it going for me. For whatever dynamics. What I did in recovery by you all teaching me is I kept pouring love into an empty well. I kept telling her I loved her. Kept reaching out to her. For 18 years in recovery. She died this past year. And towards the end of her life, she was saying on the phone to me, and sometimes, well, at least on the phone, she was saying, I love you so much. I put in the love, and you know what? I got it back. Instead of putting the hatred in, I got back this love. That where there's hatred, that I certainly had, instead, I put in the love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. And we'll be working on this in the next hour. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. I tell you, I have four sons and three daughter-in-laws and six grandkids and my wife. And we're all together at times. And I have this wonderful prayer. I mean, it's just wonderful. God, keep my mouth shut. 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 Over and over in my head, I'm saying, God, keep my mouth shut. One night, my son, my oldest son, and his wife, and Nancy and I are at dinner. It was his first marriage, and it was going down the... It was a mess. Everything was a mess. And at dinner, I kept saying, God, keep my mouth shut. God, keep my mouth shut. And at the end of dinner, we're walking out from the chair, and my son, in the such sincerity, said to me, Dad, this was the best conversation we've ever had. (laughs) 
he wasn't being facetious. <laughs> I was able to not contribute to discord by keeping my mouth shut and giving heart. Where there is error, I might bring That's my tenth step. To promptly admit when I'm wrong. Now let's talk about being wrong, promptly admitting it. Nancy might do something really wrong. And I know it. But then, I use a tone of... A, a verbal tone at her that's like she's a piece of dirt when I tell her about what she did wrong well, I was wrong the way I treated her verbal so it doesn't matter if she was wrong the fact is I made the error and if I don't promptly admit it and ask her forgiveness, then I'm going to be stuck with this stuff. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. You know, this really works where I work. I used to be the guy who had to sh change the system to make the system right. Now I'll go into my bosses and say, you know, no matter what you all decide, I'm going to surrender. It's part of my program. I'm not going to be oppositional. But let me tell you what I think and what the solution I think we could use. Amazing the responses I get now than the way I used to do it. Because I forget something. I forget that what is it, 80% of what people hear us say has nothing to do with our words. They're getting it from our body language. I had a boss some years ago who was really treating me wrong. It's really rough. And he was about 6'5", real big guy. I had no idea that the energy I was putting out as a guy barely 5'5", five five was frightening the heck out of this man. That he was terrified. No idea. And I have to be so careful with my, my truths, my doubts, to be sure that I'm not... It gets where I rather be serene than right. And I have to be very careful where I want to fight my battle have to really make sure that's the battle and that's where my sponsor comes in. Is this the place I want to lay my cards down? Because at times in life you have to. When 
it came to my boss, by the way. I would get in. I, I was working at a Seventh-day Adventist hospitals. They had a lovely chapel and it was a lovely spiritual place to work for seven years. But my boss had some problems. And I'd come in every morning and hit my knees in the chapel and give the day, and it kept getting worse. Kept surrendering, surrendering. And one day, with the help of my sponsor, I made the true, true surrender. I called a lawyer. See, I wasn't really surrendering. I was trying to manipulate. If I wrote the, said the right prayer, did the right thing, he would get better, things would get better. No. The true surrender was, Harvey, you can't do this. You are without power. Let a lawyer decide on this. And let me tell you, that lawyer, I mean, drove this man up a wall. He finally let, let me alone. And then a year later, because in the hierarchy they couldn't acknowledge too much, but a year later, this everything was fine with me and him, relatively speaking. A year later, he got fired because he was doing the same stuff with other people. I just didn't know it. But my method wasn't working. I wasn't the true surrender. And it's very interesting about surrenders and and what those ultimately mean sometimes. Um, that where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. And that goes along with this one, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Addicts, I don't know a better word. We're very intense people. We barely have a sense of humor. We take everything seriously. You look at us the wrong way, and man, you've had it. My sponsor would say we wear our feelings on our sleeve. He made a business of breaking us of it. At meetings, he would say to an African-American in the group, he'd say, oh, why don't you blame that on being African-American? Or he'd say to me, oh, I bet it's that because you're a Jew, they're doing that. He just cuts through all the crap. (laughs) Or someone will be complaining about a relationship uh, with this gal, and he'd say, Have you thought about celibacy? (laughs) He just cut through it all and get the, get your feelings to say, man, stop getting so serious. Relax. So smiling helps tremendously. And I'm doing much better when I get intense at work. I'm able to now say to my co-workers or people above me, and in my case, I work in a clinic, so I'm a physician, but no one above me is physicians. And I have to be very careful 
not to get into that MD crap, medical deity. (laughs) And it's real easy, because what you do is you pull rank, and then everyone says, oh, yes, yes, and then everyone passes aggressive to you. And it never gets done anyway. And they've learned to play the game with my obnoxious behavior. So now what I do is when I get too serious and too upset and get a little snappy, I'll go to some one of my bosses or co-workers and say, you know, I think I'm having an anxiety attack. I think that's why I'm getting so irritable. I'm feeling so overwhelmed, I just feel I'm going to die. Believe it or not, I say these words to people now. Or I'll say, you know, in my 19 years in AA, I've had alert. Man, it's going to pass. So whatever I say, don't take it seriously. Who knows what I'll say in an hour from now. And have to have that openness with them to... To not get that darkness, that heaviness, that that sadness, to bring joy in, smiling and laughter. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted. By the way, for those of you who like word derivations, I spent I spent two years in my recovery on finding God of love in the Old Testament, what you refer to the Old Testament. And it amazed me, the word we use, Lord, in English, is the word that's used for the four-letter tetragram. For Yahweh. That word means the God of mercy. Every time we're saying Lord, We're saying the God who loves us no matter what. This great God of love. I experienced this one day. I was brought back to my religious observances. I do a lot of traditional things in my religion. And I was brought back to my my religious beliefs by my Catholic sponsor and by some other Catholics in the fellowship. They really worked with me, like saying, well, you cut out whining and get back to synagogue already. Yes, I keep saying, no, I don't feel like going and this and that. And they'd say, cut it out and get back. You could always walk out. And they go over this stuff and over and over And one day, I was working with this young kid whose father was a minister. And this kid was rebelling against Jesus because of his father being a minister. And we were working on his steps. And I was working with him about his finally maybe accepting the God of his father's understanding that he was raised with. And he's getting his personal connection to Jesus. And he's working on it and getting that. And I've worked with a Unitarian minister to find the God of his understanding. And one day after I was talking to this guy, 
about finding Jesus for, for his God, his understanding. I was jogging about five minutes later over this bridge, and all of a sudden I said, a Catholic brings a Jew back to Judaism. A Jew brings a Protestant back to Christ. You know what? God is bigger than my religion. And at that moment, I experienced God's awesomeness. I, in that second, felt how big God was. I'll never be able to put it in words. But it was those events that permitted me to see how all this is possible. You know, and I want to remind a lot of y'all of Christian belief that I was told by my sponsor that early Christianity is probably very similar to 12-step recovery. That 12-step recovery is a throwback to how it probably was before the actual organization started. A fellowship based on love. Yeah. I'm hesitant because I think I need to share with you that I didn't always feel this way. I didn't stand the way I was feeling in recovery over certain things that I felt happened under Christianity. And it was getting me nowhere, not having love. And one day I sat by myself and I wrote a gratitude list about all the positives Christianity has brought to the world. For those of you who are Christian and have not done it lately, I'd suggest you do. I want to give you just two off the top of my head. Well, one especially. Democracy. This is really an outgrowth of Christianity, Christian environment. And it's very helpful for one to sit down and get whatever it is, the gratitude about who we are. By the way, they say in hundreds of years from now, Scott Peck said this, when they write about America, about what it produced, it will be remembered for democracy and 12-step recovery. Those are the two inventions. The other positive thing of Christianity is the concept of spreading the word of monotheism. 
you know. religion to to carry to people. You know, who wants to be circumcised when you're old and keep dietary laws and have all these family charity laws and all this stuff? Uh, Christianity was able to bring so much of that to the world and beyond because more things got developed in the New Testament. So there are just some wonderful things and I do a, um, a gratitude list every morning. My sponsor used to make me write them. And I'd write 20 things down every morning. Once he died, I said, that happened and i do it on my fingers. i count 20 things on my Every morning, I'm doing a gratitude list. So, I don't know where that diversion came from, but we're... Grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted. Wow. To love than to be loved. Now when Nancy gets on my case, instead of having to get the last word in, I could say to her, I'm so glad I married you. Put the whole end to the discussion. <laughs> the other one my sponsor taught me was to say to Nancy, you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> you might be right. By the way, all this we're doing this is not a essay meeting. We're having a workshop this morning. The type of talk I'm doing, the praying and the visualizations, this isn't AA or essay. We're having our own workshop here because I don't want it thought just because I happen to have a certain amount of years of sobriety that this is what's okay for SA. This is, first of all, we have essays and essays here, so it's certainly not an essay. <laughs> but besides it all, this is really this morning, and as you'll see with the forgiveness stuff we're going to do, is not a 12-step meeting. It's a hopefully a spiritual meeting of people who are involved in sexual recovery, either as uh, you know, spouses or addicts themselves. Is that it called a disclaimer? for it is by self-forgetting that one finds it is by forgiving that one is forgiven it is by dying that one awakens to eternal life it's that sentence that I understand more fully any of it. Because I died 19 years ago. I died. I am not the person I used to be. Can't guarantee it tomorrow. Today, I am not the person 
Bill W. talks about this in the AA Big Book. He calls it, and then you were reborn. Now, this is very different than being reborn in Christian terms. Because hopefully there you get reborn, that's it. You get the change in many respects, but for addiction, I get to die each day and get reborn. The next day, it only lasts for 24 hours. But the old me died 19 years ago. And each day, I let it die again. The old me. If not, then what happens in AA, they say it beautifully. The old me will drink again. Until you get a furniture replacement, rearrangement in your brain, until you have what AA basically calls a psychic change, a spiritual awakening, for one day at a time, the old me will act out sexually again. The old me will drink again. And so if the emphasis is on staying sober, it won't work if it doesn't have attached being sober and rebirth of being a different person. And what happens when you get reborn is you become the person you always were. My visualization of all this is that I have this pot of gold. It is glowing gold. God inside me. It's a pot of gold. It's just glowing. But it's covered with, here's that word again, shit. It's just covered totally with shit. Smelly shit. <laughs> and bit by bit through the fourth fourth step, the fifth step, bit by bit you get some of that cleanup done. You just remove that crap and more of the glow is coming out. And more and more. Until it's the glow and none of the crap. It's always been in there. The glow. It just got covered up. The other visualization I use is about a puppy dog. This is stuff I've needed to have contact with my higher power. A puppy dog. And you know, sometimes they vomit. 
and they eat the vomit? Or they defecate and they smell it? Smelling it, doing it, eating it. My God. And you say, oh, God, you're looking at you. And then five minutes later, you're picking it up and hugging it and kicking it and loving it. <laughs> That's my story. God's watched me tip all this stuff and it goes, Argh! and then five minutes later, he just takes me and loves me even more. I don't know where that stuff's coming from. I can't believe really it's channeling. I'm not responsible. Blame it on him. <laughs> Joe, you ready? Thank you.